What's good, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Amatelica TIS podcast here on this Wednesday, June the 22nd, the year 2022. Lots to do, lots to talk about uh, here on this midweek program in mid, heading towards late June, the great Timothy Russo, the eldest son of radio, sports talk radio legend Christopher Mad Dog Russo, will join us uh, in just a moment to discuss everything as far as his life, his New Orleans Pelicans, his job as a graduate assistant with the UConn men's basketball team. I'm very looking forward to our conversation uh, with uh, with the great uh, Tim Russo. You guys will, uh, you guys, I'll be shocked if you guys don't uh, don't end up enjoying it. Um, just to give a couple of uh, items to get on the board before we get to the end, before we get to uh, Tim, who's standing by. Uh, a couple things. Um, first off, I will get, to, I will touch on these topics come this weekend's episode on the podcast. Deshaun Watson settling with about two dozen women uh with the with the sexual misconduct allegations we will talk about that this weekend i will uh recap and kind of put a bow on rob gronkowski's career because at least i think it will be his second and final retirement from the national football league rob gronkowski one of the greatest tight ends of all time uh says goodnight uh says goodnight once again we will uh we will uh, sing the praises of Gronk coming up later this weekend. I will get into Chase Claypool. Uh, either he must either hit his head or must have smoked some really strong ganja because whatever possessed him to think that he, they, for him to go on a podcast and sit up and say he's a top three wide receiver in the National Football League, he, he needs his brain donated to science. I will uh, rip him a new one coming up this le- weekend as well. And also uh, dabble with this Lamar Jackson, uh, not controversy, but this dial, but this dialogue and this uh, discrepancy about whether or not Lamar Jackson, uh, whether or not Lamar Jackson uh, should uh, should or should not be given a brand spanking new contract to the likes of Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen, uh, just to name a few. And I'm pretty sure there will be some items of baseball for me to talk about. The Yankees uh, still are charging along, pressing along. They... Their winning ways they they came up small against the, the against the Rays on Tuesday night, but again a loss for the Yankees at this point is like spitting into the into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and then you know when you have a seven thirty five winning percentage and you're fifteen and you're fifty and eighteen and in first place by damn near a dozen games, I mean again lose a loss a loss once. Every two weeks is like a spit. Is 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 like leaning over. It's like you know when you sail across this cruise ship. Next time you guys, one of you all listening out there, uh, listening to us in the audience, you know you hop on a cruise ship. You're able to hop on a boat and you're in the middle of and you're away from shore and you're like in the middle of the ocean. You know, lean over if you're on a boat. If you're on like a a regular boat, be careful. But if you're on a cruise ship or a ship of any kind, lean over the balcony and and try and and spit directly. 
directly over the over the balcony into the water and then see and see how and see how much of a, of a and see if you see a, a a splash effect in the ocean that's what it's like when when the yankees lose games because they because they because their losses come few and far in between i will see if the yankees give us an item to uh, talk about the astros have won seven out of the last 10 games the indians or excuse me the guardians are are have won eight out of the last 10 tied for first place uh, by percentage points, uh, with the Minnesota with the Minnesota Twins in the AL Central, uh, you got the Mets in first place against Atlanta, forty five and twenty six. Uh, the Giants did a nice job coming back in a high scoring game on Tuesday night against the Atlanta against the Atlanta Braves uh, last night, beating them uh, beating them twelve to ten after they got walked off by Atlanta on Monday night. Uh, let's see. The Brewers and the Cardinals are tied for first place in the cent in the Central, dead even at thirty nine and thirty one. Uh, in the early parts of when in, in the early part of uh, of uh, Wednesday, as those two teams square off uh, later uh, tonight, uh, later on Wednesday night. Uh, the the Padres have done a nice job. They've won six out of the last ten. They are tied for first place with the Dodgers, who are who are in first place ahead of them by percentage points as well in the West. So we will uh, check back in as far as the sport of Major League Baseball is concerned. And give you my couple cents on the National Football League coming up later this week. And I can't get into the draft. You know, I am not the guy for that. As much as I would like to discuss, you know, Paolo Panchero and and uh, and uh, Johnny Davis and all the big time top recruits coming out of Duke, North Carolina, and, and just to name a few in the draft this year, I can't, I, I can't do it, you know, simply because not because I can't get into it, but because you know I haven't, you know, I saw I can count on. Two hands, how many college basketball games I saw in the regular season leading up into March Madness and factoring in that with work and school. So I can't, you know, sit, you know, on nine, nine o'clock on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday nights, uh, break down, uh, NBA, break down college basketball and be able to tell you the top recruits. Uh, or not the top recruits, but the top uh, prospects coming up uh, in the draft and who should go where and break the. I can NFL, NFL, yeah, baseball, not a chance. Not that anybody can, to be quite honest with you, because nobody, you, and nobody here. More nine times out of ten, nobody knows who the hell these uh, these prospects are that are coming up in the Major League Baseball draft in June, NBA draft. Uh, I I can't do it. I'd be wasting your time, my time. Uh, you know, when I'm doing this for a living and yeah, I got, and, and it, this is, and doing this show or, or a form of it on radio is my job. That's one thing, but, uh, your Shui's life is too busy to be breaking down a uh, college, uh, basketball prospects with the, uh, with the NBA draft. So I can't discuss that with you, nor will I will be able to discuss either, nor will I be able to discuss game three of the Stanley Cup Finals uh, between on Wednesday night between Colorado and uh, Tampa. But if you're a hockey fan and that floats your boat, uh, God bless you. In the meantime, the great Timothy Russo is standing by for a conversation. The Amatella Cotillas podcast will continue. Don't go anywhere. Back right after this. Welcome back to the I'm Telling TIS podcast. Joining me now for the first ever time here on the I'm Telling TIS podcast program, the eldest son of radio legend of Christopher Maddo Russo, older brother of Colin Russo, who we've had on in the past. 
of the University of Wisconsin. This gentleman is uh, frankly formerly of the University of Tampa and now working at the University of Connecticut, better known as UConn, working along the side of the UConn men's basketball assistant coaching staff. The one and only Mr. GQ Debonair himself, UConn's uh, in the state of Connecticut's finest and greatest, the great <laughs> Timothy Russo. Tim, good to have you on finally for the first time, pal. How are things? Jai, I, I'm doing I'm doing really well. And uh, thank you for having me on. It's it's long overdue. I know my brother um, has been on your show once or twice and he's killed it. So I just hope to do the same. Um, really appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your time, out of your day, just sort of speak with me. No, no worries, man. No worries. Nice to have you on. So let's jump right into it for the audience. Uh, just to give you just to give an audience a couple of backstory of what, what kind of goes on behind the scenes. Eldest son of, I think, the greatest person to ever sit behind and talk behind a microphone and, and the sports talk radio format. We know how much of a legend he is. We know that part of his greatness is the fact that he's quirky, that he's goofy, that he, you know, that he does things that a that a conventional person in sports media doesn't really doesn't necessarily do. So provide the audience a little bit of a background of what it was like growing up in the Russo uh, household. How old are you, Tim? 23, 24, 24, 23, 24 years of age? How old are you? Yeah, um, I'm 23 now. So I guess growing up, you know, I, I was obviously the first kid. So I sort of got a little bit of a taste of Mike and the Mad Dog early on. Um, I went on my dad's show, Mike and the Mad Dog, that is, when I was about four years old. It was in the 30 for 30. It got a nice little cameo, which is sort of funny. Granted, I was just, you know, naming animal noises and all that. But it wasn't much of a, you know, uh, much of a sports analysis but you know I think I got a little bit of a taste of what it was sort of like um I didn't really understand the fame aspect and how much of an impact he and Mike had on just the state of New York or I guess the Tri-State area that is um I didn't really get a an understanding of what he was about um I, I just knew that he was on the radio um and then obviously he or I guess WFAN partnered with Yes Network to put him on TV um for that show. Um, and I guess I was sort of the first one to sort of meet Mike, you know, and I think, you know, Mike Francesa and I have a pretty good relationship, or at least growing up that was, you know, um, he would just seem to gravitate towards me. And um, I, I always thought he was, you know, very good to me as a young kid. Um, and I believe I was, you know, out of the two of them, I was the first uh, kid to sort of be on the show in any sort of capacity. So uh, I think just having that sort of connection early on uh, sort of set the tone. And it's it, in, in terms of the Russo household, you know, it's just a lot of, a lot of screaming and yelling, you know, I think that, you know, my mother is a saint, you know, for halting conversations or just putting a pause on things, you know, because obviously it's, it's very sports dominated. So you have Colin who is at Wisconsin now working for the ESPN over there in Madison. Uh, yeah. My father who obviously does the, the radio and the television. And then you have me who's a UConn men's basketball at the moment. Uh, so you definitely, you definitely have a, a lot of different variety of just sports perspectives. So I think when you collaborate all that together, and keep in mind, I have a sister and another brother and a mother and two dogs. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the conversation ever runs stale. It's just very, very loud. Um, 
it can be rustic at times, you know, because we're always talking about the old times in terms of sports and comparing eras and all that stuff. So, but I give my mom a lot of credit for sort of halting and making sure everyone sort of gets a say. I've learned early on, they don't really get a say until it gets dead silent. You know, so I guess I've developed a little more feel over the years. Um, but nonetheless, it's been, it, it, it's been, it's been awesome. And it's been so much fun to sort of listen. And I guess I've grown a good ear as well. You know, so I've sort of stayed back a little bit longer um, just in terms of the conversation pieces and just sort of listen. I like to observe and listen. So I think that's something that I've developed over the years as well. So. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, you kind of pretty much answered my second question, pretty much answered the second question I have living with a famous father. But, uh, you know, the uh, give the audience a feel. Like, say, for instance, like, how is he always, I got to do that today! You know, at six in the morning, is he, is it six in the morning, eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night? It's always, uh, it's all, everything's a talk show where he's just, He's just going like like the moon never shuts off, you know. On uh, on special holidays like Easter, Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, you know, it's like you all sit around the Christmas tree, and he goes, uh, next up here we have uh, Timmy in Connecticut, who's got a present here uh, from Santa. Uh, Timmy, uh, open up the present and give me a couple of minutes, okay? Go ahead. <laughs> is, is, is is it like it was it all? Is it always like that, or is he kind of, or does he have his moments where he's kind of like? Chill, Model Tony knows when to like shut the radio side of him off, and he, and he becomes more more or less like a regular father. Or is it, or is it, you know, Mad Dog on leash twenty four seven? At least, you at know, least when you were growing up as a kid. <laughs> um, I always like to make fun of him. I always like to say that it's the Kushu Show show because any, I think every time you walk into a room, you just like you just sense his presence, and obviously, like you know that he's gonna dominate any sort of conversation uh which is fine at times you know I, i've I, i'm 23 now so I've, I've certainly been in a lot of situations where you know if i bring them out to dinner with my friends it's always the chris russo show but i i, so I, I guess i've grown a little bit more patience to, to sort of just listen and sort of nod my head and say yes i know that sounds sort of bad but it's not as bad as it sounds for sure you know it's actually sort of funny at times but i guess in terms of your question with the with the household you know it's He's usually pretty mellow in the morning. You know, he usually does his morning routine of, you know, taking the dogs out, you know, getting the newspapers for his mother who lives in New Canaan. Um, you know, the, he usually gets his morning coffee, but then by about 8 a.m., you know, he's usually he's usually ready to go. Um, and obviously it's pretty much throughout the day, obviously with his, with his multiple shows that he does. Um, and then when he comes home in the afternoon, evening, or at least when I was growing up, it, he would he would still be in that, mood because he would obviously tell us about his day and about you know certain aspects that happened throughout the show or some guests he's had on or whatever the case was and then once you hit I think like you said you know, about eight nine o'clock you know when the sports are coming on and um, you know he has to sit down in front of the tv and just sort of focus I think that's when he's probably the most mellow but there have been a lot of times um, when he's coming to the house screaming and yelling both good and bad um, it's just been sort of like a balance, which is great. Um, but again, I'm a little older now, so I guess I have an understanding of, of when he turns it off, when he turns it on. Um, now it's sort of like, I'm almost so in tune and so used to it. So even if he does yell and scream at six in the morning, eight in the morning, whatever it is, I don't really pay attention to it as much as I did. You know, I, again, I give my mother a lot of credit for sort of having the 
sort of the switch, you know, the mad dog switch, you know, sometimes we'll just say, just be quiet, just relax, chill. We're right here, indoor voices. Um, so I, I, so I, I give her a ton of credit for just being able to have that sort of uh, on and off switch. So uh, yeah, I hope that answered that, uh, that piece. Oh, for sure. Um, so when he watches the games, does he, does he, he doesn't, does he watch it as, like, does he watch it collectively, like, with you or anybody else who has, like, conversations while the game is going? Or is it, or does he stand, does he, is he, a, is he one of the, sometimes I'm like this too, where I stand in front of the television with my arms crossed like this, I'm just, like, staring directly at the television. Or does he, <laughs> or does he watch it by himself, but he's got his phone near him, so, like, he's checking, like, how does Christopher Russo, like, for a perfect example, how 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 did Chris Russo watch the NBA finals? Yeah, so I'm not I'm, I'm like I'm sure you and your audience have heard you know that you know my dad was really pissy about just the start times. He would start at like nine nine fifteen at night, and he would get really annoyed because you know he's sixty two years of age, turning sixty three in October. Now, does he rant like he does on the radio in the house? Like, would you be walking by your hair? Gee whiz, I mean, Adam Silver. I mean, when he can start the game at a quarter to midnight, I mean, gee whiz, I mean, nine o'clock at night when they play finals <laughs> game with the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics, the Boston Celtics fan, you know, slugging their way to the uh, to the Boston Garden with, uh, I mean, when they do this, the Bob Cousy was playing. Uh, how about how about Kareem? How about that Larry Bird, for goodness sakes? I mean, the 9 o'clock at night start times. I mean, Jay West, I mean, does he go on, like, when he gets frustrated like that, does he go on a rant as if he's still on his radio show? Or, do, or does he, like, kind of say it, like, under his breath, like, oh, they start times, like, goodness gracious, how does say? Like, how, how, does, how does that whole thing work? I think, I think he certainly does his rants around the dinner table. Um, but then I think once the game sort of comes around, he's like under his bed, they're like, geez, I don't know if I'll be able to stay up for this game. So sometimes he'll take a nap in the afternoon uh, at some point, either before his radio show or even like slightly after, uh, just so he could stay awake for part of it. But, you know, it's usually under his breath when it comes to the start times. Um, he'll usually, obviously, he'll do his rants on, on television and radio. So he'll, he'll get out of his system for sure. Um, it'll just be a manner of actually coming home and just having to deal with it. But I guess I guess part of your question also was um, does he have people sit, sort of sit around him and yeah you know it, you know when Colin's home he usually sits with Colin pretty intensely you know Colin you know he's he'll be the next Mad Dog one day and I think you know I think he sort of carries the same mannerisms just from like a modern perspective because obviously he's like 19, 20 years old himself yeah he's twenty so yeah so yes yeah, so, you know he he's a sponge like him in terms of sports knowledge he's he has the same sort of mannerisms he's just as loud. You know, he has a great personality. So he's like the next Mad Dog. So he'll be around my father a lot more around the sports. With me, I'm like, I like to consider myself the calm version. Also to sit there and I'll analyze with him occasionally. It feels like a comment here and there. But in terms of the NBA final, you know, I would honestly just enjoy just sitting there with him. Um, but I, I guess to sort of bounce off that, you know, I know with the NFL on Sundays, you know, we have that package. And there's a channel, I think it's like 727 or something like that on, on the uh, on the DirecTV where you could watch like eight games at once, like the small boxes on like one screen. So my dad will stand up and do the arm crossed and like the hand to your chin, like, hmm, what is Joe Burrow going to do here? Oh, Brady's over here. Oh, Lamar Jackson. Oh, look, it's uh, uh, Saquon Barkley. So he'll, so he'll bounce around the NFL for sure on Sundays. Um, but I guess in terms of the NBA final, you know, he would 
he'd be annoyed about the nine nine fifteen start time, but he'd be pretty mellow out by then. And then I think he'd be lucky if he would make it past the third quarter. So uh, he's still pretty up to date. And I guess it's pretty much me and my brother Colin who sort of gravitate towards him in terms of watching sports. Now I noticed because we are about about what 15, 20 minutes into your interview. I've had Colin on a couple times. Neither of you have that Donald Duck that have that Donald Duck voice where it's Italian American. British accent, Long Island, spin it up in a blender, and you get Chris Russo's voice. You both have very normal sounding. Right, so I got two questions. A, if you can impersonate your father, please do. And second, why is it that you two haven't picked, haven't, were either not born with or picked up on talking in that really high pitched, you know, that ah, da, 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 type of voice that he has? So, uh, so a if you can impersonate them, that would be entertaining. And two, how come like naturally you two haven't like picked up like on that voice? Because the very unique and distinctive voice, one that if I was living around him for for twenty plus years, I'd start sounding like him too. I, I guess I guess I'll go with the explanation first. Um, I guess we get it from our mother. Um, you know, she's an Irish woman, or I guess her her grandmother is, is fully Irish. So I think we get obviously those genes as well. So I think that's where we get sort of the um, more so just the lower toned sort of more calming voice, um, which I actually love because I, cause I've gotten a lot of comments saying I sound like my pop and at sometimes it's great, but then at other times it's like, you get like a random person. Oh, you sound like your pops. I'm like, oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. hope that's a good or bad thing. Um, so I guess I get those comments every now and then especially over the phone, because obviously they can't really put the name to the face. So uh, I get those comments the most, but I think, you know, we get obviously more of that Irish gene um, on my mother's side, more so than my father's sort of bottled up juice that he got um, from his parents. So um, I guess that's sort of where we uh, sort of stand in terms of like our monotone and our, and our voices. But I guess in terms of impersonation, um, <laughs> um he would, uh, he would always talk about Bob Cousy. And I think Bob Cousy has been such a great topic now because um, I love Bob Cousy myself. But I think some of the, one of the things he says that's sort of funny. Um, do you think Bob Cousy, what the Holy Cross, eight championships of Bill Russell, would go around here and take days off? No, 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 no. Larry Bard. Larry Bard. Gee whiz. Can the, can the game start before 7 o'clock? I mean, oh my goodness gracious! I'm sitting up here trying to trying to stay awake. I take a gummy. Ah, gee whiz! Ah. So that's just like a, a small snippet. Obviously, it bounced off <laughs> different, different players and and sort of different <laughs> and different topics in the NBA, who what have you. So I know mine was sort of random, but I guess that's sort of the best I could do on the spot. I think if I had a little more time to sort of prepare, I come up with a I come up with an actual like topic to sort of set on. But that's sort of a little bit of basis for you if you get an idea. That was that was good. That was hilarious. The, the the Larry, I swear to God, when you said Larry Bird, I, it was almost like I was talking to him for like that 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 split three seconds. But that that was tremendous. Who was the best athlete in the Russo family? Um, I guess the best athlete. Um, I would say growing up, it was probably me, and I want to be. I don't want to toot my own horn because I think that would be obviously disrespectful, but I think, you know, growing up, I, 
I played the basketball. I did the baseball. Um, I ran track. I ran cross country in high school. I played soccer my freshman year in high school. I think I had the more sports. Um, I tried tennis, didn't love it. Um, I play golf vividly now, which is great. Um, so I think growing up, I had the more sports. If I was the best athlete, I don't know if I was the best. I think if we're talking about today, my father is still, still a great athlete, you know, because he runs about 20 miles a week. You know, he plays tennis probably three times a week with his buddies. Um, and, 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 he's a, and he's about an 18 handicap in golf. So um, at 62 years of age, it's not easy to do all those three things. Um, and, and obviously still have the energy to go on talk radio and television and, you know, scream like a madman uh, for, for a good six, eight hours a day. So I give him a ton of credit there. So he's probably the best right now. But I guess growing up, it was probably me because I had the more sports. You know, I had the basketball. I played baseball up until high school and I ran track across country. You know, my brother Colin, you know, he he did the the soccer young and he did the baseball young, but he really stuck with basketball uh, for the majority of his athletic career. He never did the running. He never got into golf or tennis. Um, and he, I mean, he played high school volleyball. I think he just did that just for giggles because I think he just loves his buddies. And I think that that was more of like a, a way to sort of close out senior year. Um, you know, my sister, you know, she was a really good runner too. You know, she ran track and cross country as well, uh, throughout high school. Um, and then my brother, Patrick, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't gravitate towards sports like, you know, that, you know, like me and Colin do, you know, he's more someone like into the movie business. You know, he loves directors and he loves actors and he loves cameras and he loves, um, angles and he loves different topics. He, and, and, and he could break down any director of any movie that, you could ever think of it's 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 sort of crazy that he's sort of fallen into that sort of circle um of the business and, and i guess my sister's sort of the same way um a little bit of a different avenue um but i think that they're sort of similar in that so you get colin and myself who are sort of the sports people in the family along with my dad and then you get Colin, and then you get uh, patrick and and kira who are more so in the film so it's a great balance right now but um if you talk about the best athlete I had the more sports, I would say myself. Um, I was also very tall at a young age. Um, I had a really early growth spurt, uh, but that's sort of how I would break that down. Any of you guys play football at all? No, no football. Um, I had a, I had a couple chances. I didn't have a couple chances. I probably had uh, an opportunity to play football coming into high school. Um, but I think I was just, it was, I think it was either between soccer or football coming into high school. Um, and I think I chose soccer because not only was I like a better runner, um, but I think I just wanted to be, you know, with my friends freshman year. Um, I thought football was a little intimidating. Um, and I'm a hypochondriac myself. So I feel like if I have ever gotten a concussion, I would just feel lousy and just awful. And I never wanted to experience that ever. So I think I was a little intimidated by football. Uh, so I just gravitated towards the soccer with, and with my friends. And that's when the track and field and cross country came in. So None of us played football. I think, actually, you know what? No. Colin played football his freshman year. He loved it. Um, but I think same thing, you know, it took up a lot of his time. It's very, you know, it's a very obviously time-consuming. It's a tough sport. And I think I think he wanted to focus on basketball, too, which was – so I think, so he played – and then I, I must be I'm – really, I'm really bad right now. And then Patrick played when he was in eighth grade. He played only for a year or a freshman year, either eighth grade or a freshman year. He played – he was an offensive lineman. Um. And I don't think he loved it that much, but I think he tried it. And 
the coaches called him Smiley because he smiled all the time. So I give him credit there. So I guess I guess two of us did try football. Now that I'm remembering it, that's sort of funny. I never tried football though. Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, I got something for you. Hang tight. For yours truly, you know, I wouldn't call myself, you know, uh, all American athlete. Oh wow! Look at those muscles. For yours, <laughs> look, for look yours truly, yours truly uh, went out and uh, made his varsity uh, football team as a senior, and that is my awesome. uh, greatest. I mean, look at me. I look like I could be. You know, you see those production. Cuts for Sunday night football when they do the player profiles. That's, I mean, that, that's ah. me. That's me right there. You I'm look like Jerry Rice. You look like Jerry Rice out there tossing the football. And it's a perfect camera shot because the football's in the air, but it's in your clutches. And you can smile right. at the camera. Oh, you look that, good there, Jay. That's appreciated, man. That's, that's what I was going for. I was going for, I was going for that shot of me smiling at the camera with the football <laughs> in the middle of the air. But yes. anyway, this, this is about uh, you, not me. Uh, so you're 23 years of age. You've been out of college for a good little while now. Your teenage years are been a minute uh, since you were last were a teenager. Do we have any funny high school stories? Do we have any so funny stories of of uh, you of you of you with your friends? Uh, I get the impression out of everybody within your family that you were again Mr. GQ Playboy with the ladies. Do we have uh, any stories with uh, when it comes to any girlfriends, uh, dates, romantic rendezvous? Give, give the audience a couple of minutes on uh, on, on yes. Timothy Russo's love life. <laughs> well, the, I wouldn't say love life. I don't think love life that strong. I think my my parents, when I was growing up, they called me the serial dater because I always had, I, I they they seemed to think that I had a serious girlfriend every year of high school, which. <laughs> I hate to admit is somewhat true um you know i had had a maybe like a like a four or five month girlfriend freshman year and then my my second girlfriend uh was pretty much from sophomore year to middle of junior to end of junior year and she went to a different school the second one my third girlfriend um was from end of junior year to about end of senior year um, and then i got to the university of tampa um and i had a girlfriend uh, and it's sort of been, it's been a very cliche on and off, you know, we've dated seriously for a year and then sort of taken a break and then sort of been back and forth. So it's been sort of hectic in that sense. But, um, I guess in high school, I guess I did have three girlfriends, um, and my parents and everybody would call me the serial dater, all the aunts, all the uncles, the cousins, the friends, the family, they would all call me a serial dater, uh, which is sort of funny. Um, but I guess the <laughs> it's, it's, it's just sort of funny looking back at it, um, and I'm and I'm far from a GQ cover boy magazine. I'm far from that. I'll tell you that. I just had the hair slicked back today because we know we have an official visit here, so I got to make sure I look good. Uh, but yeah. I do know that I'm definitely not that anymore. Um, but I guess growing up, yeah, you know, I guess I had a couple girlfriends, but I mean, you know, well, they ended. Delve into it. Delve into it. How did you meet them? How did it go? Uh, all right. Well, I, I, okay. 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 I'll go. Into, I don't want to get too much detail away, but I suppose my freshman year girlfriend, her name was Catherine. Um, I knew her all throughout middle school. Um, and that was like the first girlfriend I had. And granted, it only lasted, you know, four or five months, whatever it was. But uh, that was just like a sort of like a um, interesting one because that was the first time that I sort of got cheated on. So I sort of learned from that. Oh, wow. And and I had the idea of sort of how girls gossip, and that's sort of what I 
took away from that. And I remember you're going to get a kick out of this too. Um, when she broke up with me in the middle of April, no, yes, about the first week or so in April. And at that time I was playing Stanford Peace, which is an AAU team, um, obviously based out of Stanford, Connecticut. And we had a tournament, um, the next day. So we, so I, so she broke up with me on a Friday afternoon. I went to, I, I went to track and field practice. I ran the, the 5k practice time, whatever it was. Um, and then the next morning I had to get myself up and go to a basketball tournament. And it was so funny because I was like dead silent. I've never been like this sort of heartbroken uh, ever in my life at that period of time. My dad was, you know, um, very adamant about going to these AU tournaments and he would love the 6am car rides up to Massachusetts or Rhode Island or wherever it was. I think this one was in uh, Massachusetts actually. And, you know, he would love those car rides. So he got me up and we got in the car. We went to Connecticut Muffin, his spot. We got myself an egg and cheese on a bagel. We drove up to Massachusetts. We got there at about 9, 10 a.m., whatever it was. And I had my headphones on. I was just sort of just like thinking about, you know, the way she treated me and the way that that ended. So then I go to this tournament and we play against this high-level athletic, you know, colorful, jerseyed basketball team. I don't know where they were from. But I know that the coach at the time was, um, I think it was Coach Mo at the time. Coach Mo, who, who was at the JCC over at Stanford. Uh, he's an assistant over at Trinity Catholic. But yeah, so I went out there. I, st I, I started for that scene. I was number one. And I came out of the gate and I had like maybe 12 to 16 points. And I was like, I think I was like seven for eight from the field. Uh, all my mid-range jump shots. I had a, had a couple driving layups from the baseline. Um and then, and then as I think we lost that game too, because they were extremely athletic. Um, and again, I wasn't really talking to anybody. So I really wasn't having it. So then as we're packing up our bench, you know, to sort of go to the next court, some guy walks up to me. He's like, what's your name? I said, Tim Russo. He said, cool. Thanks. Uh, next couple of days, we go on like the Northeast recruiting scouting report and I'm on the, and, and I'm on the list. You, you just see all these names who have like 30 point games, who have this, that, and the other thing, who have all these accolades, all these schools look at them. Then you see little Timmy Russo, Timmy Russo, uh, forward for Stanford piece, 14 points, whatever it was. You could use either hand going to the basket. So then my dad looks at me, he's like, Timmy, <laughs> who gives a shit about McCaffrey Murphy? Excuse my language, dry. And look at you going on the Northeast Sky Report. <laughs> So my dad was so hyped about that. It was just, it was so funny. So that was, that was that relationship. Next one, I, I, I hate, I hate talking too much. Because I know it's your show. I know you want to talk. And you know, Whoa, you're, you're this, this, is, this is what I, this is what I want. This is what I want to hear. Yes. Yeah. So then we got, and then the next one was Emma. She went to a different school. She will, she lived in Westport and according to New Canada, it's about 20 minutes North. I think it was. So she went to a different high school. And we just met through mutual friends and that ended as well because it was, that was more of like a mutual, um, a mutual breakup. But I think it was more so on my end because I had met this girl, the third girlfriend who I was just really into and she was dating somebody too at the time. And then as soon as I found out that she broke up with her boyfriend at the time, I had broken up with, with, um, with Emma, which was sort of a coincidence. So then me and the third girlfriend started hanging out sort of end of junior year. You know, we can't, we know, we became official that summer, I think it was. Um, and then we dated until senior year. That ended because I graduated. Um, and I think the countdown sort of intimidated both of us to go to college. And then I met Nicole first week in, first week of Tampa. And, you know, we've been like an on and off again 
five-year relationship, which has been, which has been sort of nuts. So I think that's sort of a timeline there with the, with the legitimate girlfriends. So I also sound gross talking about that because I've, you know, I've just named four, you know, three, four different women that I've, that I've dated for several months. But as you can tell, you, you know, as you can, as you can see, I got called a serial dater. So that was sort of my thing. Into the territory now with the first now how did you and if i'm going too far just let me know how did you find out with with the first one that, that cheated how 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 did this whole how did this break down yeah so that was a that was a very strange story um she had a twin she has a twin sister um and me and our mutual friend his name was peyton he um him and i were were chatting one day and he had told me that you know he had saw on like a Snapchat, Instagram, whatever it was that Catherine was out with, you know, with her girlfriends and some guy friends from Wilton, Connecticut. So that's like 10 minutes from New Canaan. And I was like, huh, I didn't hear from Catherine that day, whatever. Or I guess that week or that part of the weekend. So then I think it was one of the texting things or one of like one of the texts I sent was good night. And I think I included like a red heart emoji. And then she just said GN, obviously short for good night. And that was it. You know, usually we do like the emojis, whatever it was at that time. And I was like high school dating. So like who get who, you know, who cared at that point? But I got nervous. So I I asked Peyton, you know, let's go talk to twin sister, you know, like uh, let's see where she actually was this weekend because now I'm starting to receive some red flags. So then we go to the twin sister and you know the bell rings for the next class and she sort of runs away and she's like, uh, Catherine was with Will McArdle. And I'll never forget this. Will McArdle, he was a kid from Wilton High School, I think it was that I think that they had relations. Uh, at a party one evening. Um, <laughs> so relations. Relations. Well, I'm trying to keep it as PG as possible. Here, China. You, this is your you, show. You, you can be PG-13. But yeah, so I, so, so I guess they had shared a couch or a blanket during a movie uh, with some other friends. Uh, I don't know what it was, some sort of party. I didn't get the full details, but then I confronted her. I was like, listen, like, who is this Will kid? And she says, yeah, I don't think we should see each other anymore. Yeah, it was one time thing, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then that obviously was like at the end last period and I had missed my earth science class and I had left my laptop and book bag up there. So I had to go back up to the classroom after I got dumped. And I was crying at that point. I had to get my laptop and I, I ran out of there, went to track practice. And then obviously the next day was Saturday, you know, and then I decided to ball out for Sanford Peace and, you know, get ready about in a, in a little Northeastern uh basketball recruiting site which was sort of which is sort of fun i didn't even think much too much uh, think much of it until now but uh, wow that was just sort of a crazy couple couple days there <laughs> freshman year of high school. wow 13 14 years jeez my goodness gracious yeah i, mean, I think i was i think i was 15 at that point i think i was 15 at that point 16 maybe and then, was michael, and then it was michael jordan i took that personally when i <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i guess what, what was it? What was the name of the girl? Uh, her name was Catherine. That was my freshman year. Did you hear that? Belongs the streets. Belongs the streets. I didn't catch up on it the first time. Oh, I tried. Crack me up, pal. I mean, let's. Come on, yeah. high school. I mean, can we can we grow up and have a little bit of the growing? I mean, my goodness gracious. Uh, I wish my high school experience was that. Hundred uh, percent. My freshman year of high school, the girl, the girls of my class were freaking dating uh, seniors in high school and college freshmen. For God's oh. sake, but, but I, I, 
I'm sitting there as a 15-year-old, and I'm like, what are you, an idiot? I ain't sitting there playing around with these grown men. I mean, you know what's, you know what's fitting to happen. There's always going to be somebody that's more attractive than you, that's more fully developed than you, if you, if you catch my drift. And Correct. So, so what, like, what are you doing sitting there playing around with these college kids? What, just because it looks good? Just because, oh, look at me with my college boyfriend, anyway. That's, uh, that's 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 neither here, neither here nor there. Any uh, any situations like this happen, you know, towards college? You know, were there any big, t- any crazy stories regard regarding stuff like this that happened at the University of Tampa, or is it, or was what took place freshman year was like that one big thing, and then that was it? Yeah, it was sort of that freshman year that sort of uh, was an eye opening experience for me because that was obviously the first time I got cheated on so I guess I had an idea of what that felt like um and I guess the third girlfriend Carrie who I dated from junior year to about senior year of high school that was an you know that was another eye-opening experience because that was that was probably me um being in love for the first time and game of heartbroken then because of the cop well it was a mixture of uh, me going to college and her not wanting to stay in college and whatnot. So that, so I thought that was a big heartbreak for me too. So I was I was pretty open going into Tampa, but you know I haven't really outside of the third girlfriend. I never really had like another meltdown like that. Um, and I guess with me going to Tampa, I was the manager of the basketball team. So it's not like I went out there and scored twenty points for another team that I played for. No, it was more so just sort of throwing myself into Tampa basketball when I was a freshman there as a manager. And I guess I was like the first freshman that they had had, or I guess manager that they've had, where they would cut down their own Christmas break. You know, obviously you get, you know, when you're in college, you get like the month Christmas break. You know, I had spoken to the coach who's, you know, who's been a mentor of mine now, who says that I was like the only manager that they've had over the course of his years that has taken the time off at Christmas that I, you know, that the players got. So obviously the players got like from the 19th to the 26th, and then they're back from the 26th, 27th. I would be right there with the team you know, practicing and not practicing with them, but just being there, you know, being the ball boy, you know, mopping the floors, doing all that. So I sort of, after those couple of experiences and um, obviously, you know, Nicole and I have been on and off again. So there've been a lot of anger and sort of frustration there. So I think that I sort of just threw myself into Tampa basketball as a, as the head manager at that point. And I think that's sort of how I got so into this sport and how I just sort of cope with everything. So, so basketball, <clears throat> you being like a manager and getting into the coaching role, which I'll touch on in a minute, uh, that kind of like was like a coping mechanism to deal with the, deal with the love. You know, the, yeah, pretty uh, much. Uh, is marriage on the table? I know your father says, Timmy, you can't be a coach, a basketball coach, you know, bouncing around from state to state. You know, we're dragging around girlfriend and a two-year-old. I mean, you, you, you can't have it. It tells me the same thing because, as you know, I want to be—I want to become a broadcaster. He goes, "Guy, you cannot be a young broadcaster because you make no money. You cannot be a young broadcaster pondering some woman to marry, dragging around an eighteen-month-old. You can't have it." Yeah, hundred so percent. So, so, so you, you agree with that advice? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, um, my dad always says, "You know, Timmy." Be use your noodle. Be smart. You can't be a big time coach somewhere and have little Timmy's running around across America. That's not gonna happen. Now. I'm not gonna do that. You can't do that. You need to get married at a time when you're in a good place. Blah blah. blah this and other thing. So he's always telling me about the little Timmy's, and I always get sort of skeeved by that. So I I I, I understand coaching and obviously broadcasting is gonna be a lot of sort of 
you know, bouncing from different job to job in different states and you had to do a lot of traveling, you probably got to do make a lot of sacrifices. So I've, I've gotten that message early on, but no marriage, marriage is not on the table, not until I'm at least 30. That's my mother always says at least 30, at least 30. Central Russo uh, here on the Amatelki Italians podcast doing a tremendous job for us. So the great Coach K as we transition to uh, college basketball for a minute and transition to sports. Coach K retired after, what, 40, 42 some odd years at the University of Duke. Uh, he's been on a guest. He was a guest on your father's program many a time. Uh, I heard the story when I had your brother on, on Selection Sunday, of the story of him uh, meeting Coach K talking, talking with him in his office a couple of times down there at uh, Duke University. Uh, for the audience, give me uh, some memories, if you have any, give some stories, if you have any, of the great uh, coach, Mike Shevsky. Yeah, so um, I think growing up, you know, he was sort of one of the coaches I had looked up to. I think everyone has that sort of dream of playing college basketball. Um, and a lot of people, there's a lot of different schools, but I think for me at like, you know, when I was 10, 12, 13 years of age, it was Duke. Um, uh, so I think my 13th birthday, you know, my dad flew me out with him obviously to go to Duke university. So we got a campus tour. Um, I had a broken arm at this point. Um, I had just come back from a broken arm in seventh grade, um, from playing tackle football and no pads with my buddies. So I, so I had like the little arm brace that I had that I could sort of, you know, take on or, you know, put on and off if, if I felt needed. Um, so we went to Duke and we got a tour of everything. You know, we got to see Cameron indoor. We got to see the football facility. We got to see some classrooms and see the campus. Um, and then the, I guess the person who was giving us a tour, I don't, it definitely wasn't coach K, but I do remember somebody gave us a tour and he said, you want to go shoot around at, um, on the court? I look at my dad and I'm like, Oh boy, like this is a real deal. So my dad and I are doing fake drills, you know, cause my dad's not so much like the workout sort of work out a basketball player tight you know he's more so like analyzing each shot so he was he was trying to go on the court with me at Cameron Indoor and he was trying to put me through drills and I'm like dad these aren't drills but at least at least you're trying so we did a lot of just obviously a lot of shooting you know he he wanted me to shoot without like that foamed arm brace that you get after you break something or I guess you break a phone so I, I tried shooting with obviously it was on my left arm so I don't shoot I'm a right-handed shooter so uh, but it was like one of the first times that I had shot a basketball with without that Brace. So, you know, we, we were shooting around, we, we did a lot of mid-range jump shots. That was sort of my, was sort of my specialty. You know, we did a lot of transition where he would just throw, you know, my dad would just throw me the ball at half court and I would just run and make a move and then go to the layup and then, and make a layup. And then obviously, you know, after a couple of times, you know, you look up at the scoreboard because they have like a nice jumbotron and you can see that they had implemented the camera so that they could either zoom in on me shooting, they could zoom in on the basket in terms of like the actual, like, like the net, you know, like the ball going through the net, like that swoosh. Um, I think that was sort of cool. And my dad, you know, looked up, he's like, you know, obviously my dad, he's like, Timmy, Timmy, look at this, Timmy, look at this, Timmy. Would you look at that? Oh my goodness. So he was just, he was, I think we were both just in awe. And then after that, um, and the reason why we had to go to Duke was because, you know, my dad had an interview with Coach K. Um, I'm not sure if it was for a certain amount of wins that he received or, or they, I guess he got, or if it was something else, but I do know that they had to, that, you know, my dad, had, my dad had to interview him. So I had to, I was able to sit in on that. And I think after the interview, that was when coach K brought me into his office, sat me down, sort of talked me through my broken arm, sort of talked me through competitiveness. Um, I think my dad told him that when I was young, when I was young in fifth grade, I made the taxi squad, which is sort of like the reserves 
And then now I'm, I guess at that point, I guess that, um, in seventh grade, I made the A team, which was obviously the, you know, better of the two teams. And I was a starting player for that team too. So it was more of like a motivational speech and, you know, just being able to speak with coach K is just, it was truly remarkable looking back at it. And I remember, and I looked at the pictures of the day and it's like a, I'll, I'll show it to you now really quick, but it's just like a horrible, horrible picture because at that point it was, I had the buzz cut, you know, I was just sort of tired at that point, but like, if you could see it, Jai, that was what I, that was what I looked like way back in the oh, day wow. when, I was, when I was turning 13 years <laughs> of age. Yeah. So it was like a buzz cut. I had the fake button down shirt. I had my little new Canaan fleece that I had. It was just, oh, it was brutal. So that was just one of the, one of the few highlights of my life from coach K. And, um, and then after that, you know, he sent me a thank you note, um, you know, sort of like a thank you note, which was great. I had that in my room still. And then he sent my dad, uh, because I think, I don't think he, I don't, he was saying it was to me, but he sent it to my dad. It was two pictures, two framed pictures of him and like a couple of the Duke shots and each, each message, it was two of them. Each message had two different messages. Each message was dear Tim, you know, follow your dreams, follow your heart. The other was stay competitive, be true to, shoot to yourself, whatever it was. And I still have those hanging in my room as well. So, um, you gotta thank coach, you know, you have to thank coach K for that. You know, he built a dynasty over there at Duke. He's been there for 40 plus years, coaching for about 47, 48 years. You know, he's just been such an idol for so many people in college basketball. Um, and he's just sort of one of the guys that I looked up to growing up as well. And my dad and him have a great relationship, which is, which is awesome to see, you know, my dad being a friend of the legend like that. And, you know, I think being able to meet him and shake his hand and sit down in his office and Cameron indoor and then go over to Sajeskiville is just truly a surreal experience for me. That, that is so. Was there, I understand that your team was a part of the NCAA tournament, which is my next, which kind of leads into my next question. But as a sidebar to the one I just asked you, was there a part of you inside quietly was saying, man, I really hope you, you know, I really hope he wins it all in his final season. Or was that, I, or was that, or was that like, or what, did, did you have that thought at all in the back of your mind, deep down quietly wearing the Yukon Huskies uh, sweatshirt? Or, 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 was it, or was it like, nah, man, I, I'm Yukon 110% all the way. You know, if Duke was in the first round, I love you, Coach K, but so big, you know, happy retirement. Which, which, which side of the coin were you on back in, uh, back in the month of March during the tournament? Well, well, obviously now, you know, I'm Yukon thick and thin now, and, you know, I've been sort of sworn to secrecy and sort of, you know, sworn to the throne of UConn. So I've been, uh, been, been read several riot acts rooting for other teams. But, you know, watching that final four game when I think they played UNC, I think it was almost written in the stars. You know, I almost thought that, you know, it was like one of those times where it'd be like a happily ever after ending. Um, and I think another key aspect, you know, the fact that he lost in the final four and players got, you know, players played so hard for him that game. You know, I think that was also a tremendous accomplishment, you know, being able to be at that late uh, of age and, you know, bring that team to a Final Four. And granted, you know, he, granted, he had a lot of talent with him, so, um, which obviously is extremely helpful. But I think I almost thought he was going to make it to the championship game. I really thought I did. And it was it obviously it was heavily anticipated because you, you, ne you never really see a Duke-North Carolina Final Four. And North Carolina had already sneaked by Duke. Yeah, and, and UNC already UNC already sneak uh, snuck by Duke in Coach K's last home game. So I was thinking that Duke was actually going to find a way to win this game, and you know it was back and forth throughout the you know down the stretch, and it was just 
a lot of intense, a, a lot of intensity. And just um, one of those games where like you almost didn't want it to end, you know, and, 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 you know, my dad read a book about coach K and he just, he knows that how competitive he is. And I think you saw it too, Jai, you know, after his last home game, when he lost, he went up to the mic and it was almost like he was about to pick a set up and smell the roses, but he went up to the microphone. He's like, no, this is unacceptable. We cannot lose. Like, this is awful. By bad job by me. I'll take the personal hit. So I thought after that, he wasn't going to lose, but I think Duke just, you know, ran out of gas a little bit. You know, North Carolina had a tremendous run. Um, you know, uh, Hubert Davis just did a nice job with that group. He, he got them to sort of will through these couple wins and, um, and, 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 through the, and through a lot of these tough games in the tournament. And um, it was sort of sad to see Coach K go, but it was almost like a, like a bittersweet goodbye. You know, everyone wanted to see him win, but I think him getting to the Final Four is a tremendous accomplishment this late of age and team that he had. And, you know, it, was, it, it, it would have been awesome to see him win. Um, I was certainly rooting for Duke at that point. Obviously, I'm UConn, you know, uh, thick and thin, so I'm not going to go too much into that. Um, but right. it was very, it was a little bittersweet for sure. Um, and this kind of ties into, and we'll get to UConn squad and how they did this past season in a minute. But you know, for those you know, you, for those of people that are listening to me that won't, that don't know uh, Timothy Russo from Adam, that don't, you know, that that don't get you and your family and everything else like I do. Explain to the audience what struck a nerve with you internally. What lit a fire up under you that said, you know what, as a career choice of mine, I want to become a bas- I want to become a basketball coach on the college and, pro- and maybe uh, the uh, the uh, NBA level. What 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 struck up in you inside? At what age? What time? What moment? What, what incident, what conversation, what, what hit you one day to become a college basketball coach? Sorry, I was just trying to my computer. But yeah, um, I think, you know, it, it's a funny, you know, it was when I was a sophomore in high school. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, I was, I was a camp counselor, basketball coach, quote unquote, um, for the formal high school coach of mine from freshman to junior year, his nonprofit called Full Court Peace. Um, and he had brought in a bunch of inner city kids and, and interlocked them with the Wilton New Canaan crowd that he already gets at his camp. So he wanted to interlock both those sort of communities and, you know, build a, a, a really fun camp. And these are more so like the older kids. This is probably between sixth to eighth grade or uh, about, I think it was like, I think it was sixth to eighth grade. And I was given a team. Um, I never forget. I had Jameer. I had Leo. I had Mikey. Um, you know, I, I had a lot. I had a great group of kids. And you know, we sort of rode with that team for the majority of the camp. But it was like a week camp. And you know, we did the drills with them in the in, in the afternoon. And this is a and this is a camp I, I had done after like the morning camp with the little kids that I did. So I did camp from nine to one with the little kids, and I did this older camp, which is like my two to six. So we did. Um, like drills in the early part of the afternoon and then we do like a snack break and then we do like contests one-on-one against the coaches and then you get into the games and practices and stuff so that was like the first time I really had like my own little group of, of kids to sort of work with and I think it was like it was like six or seven kids that I got but um you know and obviously there's a tournament at the end so that was when we had um that was when we had the tournament and then you know my team lost in the semifinals. um 
to um, to a couple to to one of the to I forget who coached that team. I think it was I forget who coached that team, but I remember losing that semifinal uh, in, in the camp tournament. Um, I don't know why I was so emotional, but I was like yelling and screaming on the sidelines, and I was sweating, and I was, I, I had gone through another a shirt of mine because I was sweating so much. So that was just sort of like the sort of the I op- that was sort of the experience that I thought really caught. Yeah, coaching is what I want to do. Um, and then and then in the post game huddle, which we don't normally do at camp again, like you know, like what camper wants to talk to their counselor after a game, and and I had. I, and I and I was crying because I was so upset for the fact that we lost. And I had, I had such a good time, such a such a fun, entertaining experience with this group, <clears throat> with this group of kids, and working alongside the my former high school coach. And that was when that was you know that was when the switch turned to yeah I want to coach. So then that went from finishing out my high school career to University of Tampa, which is a small D two in in down in Florida, where I became the head manager for four years. And then that was when I maneuvered over to become a graduate manager, graduate assistant, however you want to call me, um, to work for them. And that's, you know, every step has been one step closer to my goal. So that's sort of, but that particular camp, sophomore year, really turned the switch for me. So it's funny because my sophomore year of high school was when it clicked for me that I wanted to become a, uh, wanted to become a sportscaster. So it's ironic that wow. the same time of our lives, we kind of knew at that age what we wanted to do. Um, and go into your job at UConn a little bit, um, you know, provide the audience a little bit of a background of what it is you do specifically, what, how, you know, your limitations, what trips, you know, travel with the team, you know, provide the audience a little bit of a, a, a uh, what, what do they call it, a backstage pass on what, uh, on what your life is like as a graduate assistant at UConn. Yeah, so I think. You know, I think the best way to describe it is you know, obviously I'm a graduate manager, graduate assistant. So like one of the, t- I don't really know what I'm, what they call me. I think they refer to me as a graduate manager, but pretty much what I do is, you know, like obviously during practices, you, you, you like you rebound for the players, you, t- you like you take some stats, you mop the floors, you give them water, you sort of do it, the normal managerial role that's expected. Um, then obviously in the office, you sort of, um, you sort of work around the day-to-day operation of the program, whether that be helping with scheduling up certain, you know, certain trips or certain visits from recruits. So it, it's sort of like, I get, I get to have a hand in everything. You know, I do a little bit of rebounding, you know, I do a little bit of, you know, planning out certain activities with the team. And then I get a chance to sort of interact with the players. If I, you know, have to make sure they get the study hall or classes or, you know, make sure if they have any appointments, you know, taking to those. So, I really just get to bounce around in different areas, which has been sort of cool because I get a little bit of everything. I get to work with the players. I get to work with the coaches on the court a little bit with rebounding and passing to them. I get a chance to do some office work and sort of do the day-to-day operations and sort of like how we run as a program. Um, pretty much all pretty much all it comes down to is um, making sure that you're there in the right moment. And I've, so I feel like I've been there with, been in that, been in that sort of situation a couple of times with, whether a player needs something or a coach needs something. So, and obviously the, the responsibilities sort of vary between schools. So I don't want to make it seem as if that every particular job as a graduate manager, graduate assistant is the same at every university. It's definitely not the case, but I know for UConn, that's sort of how it has been painted on the wall. So uh, that's just sort of what I do. It, it sort of varies on a day to day, but you know, it's making sure the operation runs smoothly. That's pretty much what I do. Make sure everything is smooth, make sure the everyone's happy, make sure everyone's taken care of it. Honestly, making sure everyone 
has a good practice. <laughs> That's sort of what it is. And then with traveling, you know, I travel with the team, which is great. Um, same, same sort of thing. You know, you got to make sure the, you know, I, I sit sometimes with, you know, with travel and, you know, sometimes, you know, make sure that the players, you know, make sure they eat, you know, make sure they um, get to the facility, you know, or help in practice, obviously, you know, sort of run around for the coaches on the road. It, it's sort of, very, it's sort of tougher on the road because you get a little less help. You don't bring as many managers um, or as many, like, or like the full group that you get at home. So it's a little more hectic, but more or less the same thing. Make sure everyone's happy. Make sure everyone's taken care of. Make sure the operations run smoothly. Uh, that's sort of my role, and that's sort of what I've been trying to do here, which has been great so far. And your role during games, your role on game day. Yeah, so during the games, you know, I'm, I don't know if you watch, I don't know if anyone watches UConn basketball on TV, which I'm sure, you know, I, I, so I'm usually the one sitting at the end of the bench, and during the media timeouts, I run out to the court and put the stools chairs down, <laughs> put the chairs down. And then, and then I assist with making sure everyone gets waters, towels, et cetera, make sure a coach needs a marker, somebody needs a pen, somebody needs a, like a piece of paper, whatever it is. So I'm sort of running around on the sidelines, you know, make sure the same sort of thing that I sort of said, to make sure, make sure everything is taken care of. Um, so I think that that's, um, I think that's sort of been um, my role, which has been cool. It's been really cool to interact with everybody. So that's sort of what I've been in touch with. Gotcha. Before we get to the UConn, you know, quick little recap because you know UConn had a very, very good season this year. Uh, I believe your coach—I forget his name. Who is it? Is it Dan, Dan Hurley? Hurley? Yeah, Dan. I know. I know. I got it. He is a Cincinnati native and a diehard wrong finger, diehard ah. Cincinnati Bengals fan. Huge so, Bengals fan. Huge. So, if you could, could you provide some insight to? me and the rest of the Nation that listens and insight on how uh, Dan Hurley treated, you know, the back. Because it's funny, as as you guys this season got down the wire and the games got more and more important for you guys, the more and more important the Bengals games got with their, you know, late in the regular season, the playoff runs, and then, of course, culminating with the Super Bowl. So give the audience a little bit of a background of how Dan Hurley from an, from an assistant's perspective, kind of was able to be all in with his basketball team and then all in with his favorite football team on a Super Bowl run that they hadn't had since, 19, since 1980, 1988. Yeah, so he, he makes his comments during practice. I think he's very good at balancing the two. If he has to focus one on basketball for a particular time or focus on the football, I think he's very good about balancing the two out. And obviously during practice, if it's like a longer practice, you know, he'll, he'll sort of chime in on the sidelines with, with some of us and be like, oh, how about those bangles, uh, this, that, and other thing. So he'll sort of do that. But I know that when we went, we had a, we had a double trip. We had – and double trip obviously means that, you know, a double trip means we don't really go home in between, you know, so we'll just go right from the one state to the next. So we went to Xavier, which is obviously in Cincinnati, um, that's probably about 15 minutes outside the city, and we were driving through, and we, and we drove by the Bengals Stadium, and, and, uh, and the coach's son's on the team, who's also a big Bengals fan. And obviously the bus is pretty quiet, you know, it's sort of been like a long flight, a long travel day, uh, a couple of tough games ahead of us. And he looks out and he sees the Bengals stadium and he's like, let's go, Andrew. That's obviously his son. And everyone just starts clapping and cheering and screaming, which was sort of funny. And that was obviously the sad, that was the Friday before Super Bowl Sunday. So then we had a game at Xavier, which in which we lost um, sort of down to the wire. Um, and then that Saturday night, we went to New York to play St. John's, which is Super Bowl Sunday. We had a game at noon, and we came away with the win. So 
it's always a lot happier as I'm obviously as, as any, as anyone who works in sports or for a team, it's always a much happier bus or plane ride when, when the team wins. So all Hurley wanted to do was get home and get home for the Super Bowl, for the Super Bowl on that Sunday. So we were racing home on the bus. He wanted, I was saying hi to my buddy Tyler who visited, um, who visited the garden and who watched the game um, from the tickets that, I, that he was able to get. And, um, and he, and, and, and Hurley was sort of like waving everybody from like the tunnel, like, make sure we get on the bus. Go, let's so, go. so he you was like, five yeah. hours to kick off. Let's move it. Yeah. So he was like, let's go. And, in New York to Connecticut, it's probably like a three-hour bus ride. So he was really trying to haul it, which was great. So I thought that was really fun. And uh, he he just been so adamant about it. And that was sort of the things that I sort of – that was one of the things you could talk to Hurley about, especially during practice. It was like a longer practice. He would make a Bengals, Bengals comment, and he would sort of be not in your face about it, but he would but he would continue the conversation. Oh, yeah, TV Hall, 100% right. Oh, yeah, did you see Jamar Chase? Oh, what a ball player. Joe Burrow, hell of a quarterback. So he'll, he'll, he'll have his comments, he'll have his – He'll chime in here and there, but when it's basketball, you know, he knows is that it's fully business and that's, oh, and that's what he does. Well, how was he in the days and in the weeks after the Super Bowl loss? I know with me, I was a cranky SOP. I, I didn't go, I didn't go to bed Super Bowl Sunday till about after one in the morning. The game was over at about a quarter to 10. I didn't go to bed until the whole three hours later. Uh, I hate Valentine's Day, one of the worst, most crock of garbage holidays in the history of Western civilization. So, and I said, and it's funny because I said to myself, I, I told my, I told my family, I said, if the Bengals lose the Super Bowl, I am going to be one cranky, one feisty, angry sob on 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 Monday because don't don't talk to me. I don't have any Valentine's Day. I don't hear about no cards, no foolishness, no nothing. Yes, let me be in an angry mood. Let me, let me be feisty and let me wellow or yes. excuse me, mellow in my misery. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Oh, I was in such a bad mood. And I, and I, my, I couldn't escape for a good three-week period. I could not escape. And you know what's funny? Every now and again, I think if I ever have like a moment to myself, my mind always goes back, always goes back to that game. I, I swear to you, I have not seen the whole game, nor do I plan to. But I, I swear to you, I didn't see him about that. I saw that final play with with Donald chasing that. I just, I saw it about. A, I've seen it about a half a dozen times since. And every right. single time I look at it, it's like if that play could have been different, if that play could have been different. Oh yeah, the ref screwed a uh, Logan Wilson with the holding penalty. Like every single time. Like how how did he manage? That, I don't know if you guys had a practice or whatever the, 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 the day after. How did you guys hand, how did he handle that loss in the day and in the weeks after uh, Super Bowl uh, 56? Well, I think um, I think the biggest thing with that, you know, he's obviously a very avid fan just like you, probably just about the same. And I know that, you know, we, we, had, the, we had the game at St. John's at noon on that Sunday. So we raced home for that. Um, and then I, the one thing that I sort of remember was that we had practice the next day and we had Seton Hall at home, uh, that Wednesday. So we had practice that Monday and I remember just Hurley just sort of being quiet in the beginning, but I think he was, he was a very fiery practice. I do remember that. Um, but I think that one of the biggest things that coach does is that he throws himself into basketball in such a such a fiery manner it's 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 almost remarkable to see so I think him sort of what I did with with coping of 
sort of my breakups from his open to basketball. He does the same exact thing. And we came out with the victory uh, against Ian Hall at home. And that was in the midst of a great couple of games there. You know, we had beaten Xavier at home after that. We beat Villanova at the XL Center after that. We went to Georgetown. We beat Georgetown. So we were in the midst of a great run. So if you think about it, and I hate to say this because I don't know if the coaches are going to be listening to this, but because of the Bengals loss, we were in the midst of a great, great run in the middle of our season. And we got a couple great wins at home. Yeah, so it's been, it's been very inspiring, which is great. It, it fired everybody up, which was honestly, honestly good. Which it sucks that they lost. I was rooting for the Bengals the whole way through. Um, you know, and, and obviously I wanted more of I wanted a happy Monday, but yeah. you know, we also got four great wins that week, or, or you know, and in that span of the two weeks. So I'll take that any day of the week. I mean, hey, I mean, you get lemons, you make lemonade. How did now? I know you and your brother. And your father, big time college basketball fans. You live and breathe March Madness. You, of course, from a you know from being a little kid through high school and college, you experience March Madness and the events that it is. Making the brackets, watching all the games at one time. You know, sitting on your you know watching the games, whether it's whether you're on the run on your phone or sitting at home. You know, from twelve noon to midnight on on that on the first two days of the tournament, Thursday and Friday. Now you got this year. You had to, you got the opportunity to experience the tournament from a coaching perspective, so to speak. Give the audience a little bit of a perspective of what it was like experiencing the NCAA tournament as a coaching assistant, knowing that you know, unlike other years, where it's where like the, the fan of you says, "Oh man, that's a good game. Can't wait for that." But then it's like, "Oh, I got this thing I got to do. This thing I got to do. This thing I got to do." So give the audience a little bit of a perspective of experiencing March Madness for the first time working for a team that's playing in the 64 uh, round, uh, or excuse me, yeah, the 64 team tournament. Yeah, so, um, well, well, first of all, I'm not a coaching assistant by any means. I'm just a graduate manager, so I was lucky enough to be along the ride. Um, but I think at first hand, it just, it just goes to show that everything's run to a T. Everything's on a schedule. You know, you have certain court time, then you got to get off. So everything sort of runs on its own schedule, which is sort of crazy. So I think just being able to be sort of pinpointed in different directions um, was sort of hectic at first. But I think being able just to walk into the Key Bank Center that, that day we played Texas, uh, no, excuse me, New Mexico State, um, was just a lot of a lot of adrenaline, you know, a lot of, a lot of anxiety. It was just one of those things where, you know, you love to be a part of it. And, um, you know, we had a very upsetting loss and um, I don't want to go too much into detail about that because obviously I'm not a coach. I just got to make sure that everyone's taken care of. But all I know is that just the anxiety builds up. That was real. Like everything prior to that was real. Flying there was real, you know, staying at the hotel, you know, um, making sure all you know, make sure the film's set up, you know, making sure that Everyone's fed, making sure all the coaches are happy. Nothing's out of place. Nothing's out of order. We, you know, we run on the schedule, you know, walking to our team bus from the hotel with all of our fans sort of outside the hotel cheering and clapping. Every, all of that was just real. And I cannot wait to see what the future holds um, for this year. Cause obviously I'm in year two of this two year program. So I'm really excited to see what we do. And I definitely want to get back there because let me tell you something. 
we 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 walked out of there with the loss, which was brutal. But just watch, just imagine walking out of there with the win. Ah, oh, anxiety will just run through you. Adrenaline will run through you. It was just really, just really such a feisty, feisty couple of days there in Buffalo. I got you. Let's turn back the clock to around this time two years ago. Pandemic hits. I believe you were still in college at that time, if I'm not mistaken, right? 2020, you were still yep. in college? Yep. Um, pandemic hits. World is shut down. And then a couple months later, George Floyd, country falls apart, essentially falling apart uh, by the seams with that. Delve into from a 20-something-year-old white kid from Connecticut, how you were able to handle, how you were able to cope with the pandemic, how did you handle it, your reaction, you know, what was going through your mind when the, you know, when the world kind of shut down in mid-March of two years ago, and then, and then the racial unrest with the protests and the riots, how did, how did Timmy Russo uh, handle and cope with all, with, uh, with all of that that was going on at that time two springs ago? Yeah, so, you're right. I was a, I was going to be, I was a junior in college about this time in March at the University of Tampa, and and I remember uh, we had just finished our season with Tampa, and um, we had a very poor year. I think we were like seven and twenty-one or eight and twenty-two, one of those two records. Uh, I think we were seven and twenty-one. We had a really bad year, so I think everyone was sort of itching to sort of get a break, and that was when the pandemic hit. So I flew home thinking that I'd be able to come back to school to sort of gather my things. But no, you know, that was when the pandemic sort of came upon us. And that was when we were sort of all in quarantine, um, which was which was sort of tough, but it was sort of almost a blessing in disguise because you were able to see family a lot more, you know, be home. And, you know, I'm not, I was never home really in Tampa when I was in Tampa because I was always with the team. I was just a plan right away. So I wasn't, I didn't really have the luxury of going home on the weekends. You know, I really had to, you know, be dialed in with school, make sure the basketball team was all set and sort of sort of handle my business down there. So I think being able to come home was great because I was able to spend a lot of time with family. Um, and then my dad sort of maneuvered back into work uh, a month, a couple of months after that. And that was when I started to work with him remotely. You know, I would make sure the Zoom is set up properly. I would help him with certain articles they needed printed out. Granted, it's not much of a job there, but I think seeing what he does on a day-to-day basis was sort of cool too. I don't, I don't really spend time. I, don't, I didn't spend a lot of time with my dad when I was in Tampa because obviously I was down in Florida. He was in New York, so or in Connecticut. So um, I think being able to work with him from like an online, remote sort of producer standpoint was was really cool. And just sort of see what he does on a day to day basis, who he speaks to, the meetings he has to deal with, all that. So I thought that was sort of great. And to see all my siblings, you know, we're all in college and we're all doing different things and everyone's sort of coming together. I know my mother loves that for sure, just having everybody home. I think she just loved that. Granted, there was a pandemic going on. There was a lot more to the world, you know, outside of our doors, you know, sort of occurring. Um, but I, nonetheless, you know, we enjoyed having everybody home. And I guess in terms of sort of the world sort of collapsing, you know, I, I sort of look at it and, you know, I had a lot of conversations with a lot of the players that I knew from Tampa, you know, a lot of the people that I sort of worked with. Um, and everyone honestly had their, you know, everyone sort of had their, sort of voice on it and I sort of just looked I was honestly just like sort of in shock you know I can I, I just refused to honestly believe that the world had come to that you know and I honestly didn't know how to handle it so and I knew I wanted to stay out of it because I knew that 
obviously in this day and age in 2022, you know, like you, you say a particular aspect or talk about a certain topic, you know, you, and, and you say one, say one thing, you know, you sort of, you know, obviously get pounded. So I wanted to make sure that I knew what I wanted to say. I knew I wanted to feel, I know at that point, you know, I, I knew the country, needed, I knew the country needed to change. I knew that there had to be something done, you know, with a couple of the shootings, even now, you know, some, there has to be something that has to change in order for us to thrive, in order for us to make sure the country doesn't fall apart. You know, there has to be a change. There has to be something in place. There has to be, you know, has to be some sort of, I, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to keep using the word change, but there has to be some sort of just a different outlook that we have to apply with some of these issues that are going on. It's just, it's honestly just too infuriating to see on the news and on television, you know, people dying or, you know, people struggling with from COVID or the racial injustices, all that. Like there has to be something that has to be done to make sure that everyone's taken care of. And, you know, I know a lot of people are focusing on that right now. Um, I don't, I'm not too much into politics, so I don't, I don't want to make too many comments about it because, you know, I, I'm not too knowledgeable on the subject, but all I do know is that there has to be a change. And I personally work with a lot of, a lot of, a lot of black athletes, a lot of white athletes. And, you know, I think, I think they're just, I, so I, I have both, I have, I have the perspective of just change and just making sure that the country is in a better shape tomorrow than it is today. And if that takes several years, fine. If that takes a day, great. But we have to make sure that there has to be a change. There has to be a positive impact every single day. Unless we're not gonna, and then we're not, not going to go anywhere if it doesn't happen. So that's, I think that's how I'll leave that answer. Excellent answer. And another thing, I will be interested to get your comments on this too. Back in early May, it was a huge firestorm social media, newspapers, when your dad was on first take and he commented on Draymond Green, who kicked, who said his piece on the Grizzlies fan, on the Grizzlies fans that were giving him a hard time back in their second round playoff series. And your father said, like he always says, I didn't, can, can you stop? Can you pipe down and take it easy? You know, pipe down. Nobody, nobody Draymond Green, stop. And J.J. Reddick, who was on the show with him, uh, said, that, you know, basically took umbrage with that and equated your dad to somebody who's on Fox News. And then Draymond Green came after your father, you know, and, and essentially a good portion of the Twitter universe was, ant was anti-Chris Russo. It was Draymond Green, J.J. Reddick, and Twitter versus your father. I know, and he isn't my father, but when I saw that, it, it, made my, it made my stomach turn. It felt like, you know, at least how I've been raised, I take it as if, I take it as with my family as when you attack one of us, you attack all of us. And with me, I, it, it, it made me cringe and it made my stomach turn to somebody that I know has got a good heart, good, good, uh, good heart, good human being that's always treated me right, that gets on national radio and calls me uh, a, a, a fourth a fourth son fifth kid of his you know is, is getting talked about like that how did you uh, as someone that's his own flesh and blood firstborn no less how did you take uh how did you take all of that with how, how did you take and how did you manage that yeah it was that was one of the tougher things that i've sort of because i was a lot older now and i, I didn't really 
haven't really been inside of that Twitter pothole sometimes that that could that some people could have you know, some people sort of struggle with. But I do know that you know what what JJ Redick sort of insinuated was wrong. You know, my dad obviously went on the idea that Jim Brown Green needs to focus on basketball and stop giving the Memphis Grizzly fan base um, the middle finger and stop putting himself in asinine situations so he doesn't get so he doesn't get ejected, so he doesn't get suspended, so he doesn't get fined. You know, that was where my dad was coming from. Put yourself in a situation where you can play, not where you get suspended. And I understand players are allowed to have their voice and being able to express themselves 100%. I agree with that. You know, I think they had the platform to do it. Um, they had the popularity to do it. Um, and by all means, please, I want you to do that. But for people to assume that my dad's a racist is a whole bunch of BS because that, I, I think that really stoked me the most because obviously my dad is not racist and what, in no shape or form, no, he has hired several African-American uh, talk, uh, uh, talk show hosts to his channel, uh, to Sirius XM that is. And I know that he is sort of, and he, I know he got killed on Twitter, but, and, and, and I remember that one video of JJ Redick sort of slandering my dad got like over 13 million views and Jim on Green retweeted it to Marcus Cousins retweeted it. Marcus Stroman chimed in. So every athlete that I could have ever thought of just sort of chiming in. And it was almost like, like you just said, Twitter against, you know, Twitter against my dad. And it was really unfair because that's not what my dad meant. You know, my dad potentially used a poor choice of phrase there, but my dad was meaning in a sense that Jim Green needs to stop putting himself in ass next situations so he could play in these games and not get suspended, not get fined, not give the finger to the fan base that you're playing, whatever the case may be. That was what my father was trying to say. So for J.J. Red to sort of turn that and twist that and call him like a Fox News racist was completely out of line. Um, but I know that, you know, that's not my father. And I know that sort of held me for a little bit. And I, you could, I think one of the coaches sort of saw it on my face. He brought me into his office and we had an emotional conversation about it. But I think that, you know, going through that, you have to, I understand now that any social media platform, any particular thing you say is always gonna be monitored. Everything's gonna be watched, maybe under a microscope, you know, just, and don't get caught up in the, in, in the Twitter, um, in the Twitter um, dark hole that is, you know, you don't wanna get stuck in there. So be true to yourself, you know, say what you mean, you know, say it with your chest, but you know, just got to make sure you be careful what you say and people can shoot it all the time. And that was sort of how I managed it. So again, I would just throw myself under UConn basketball, even harder, even faster. So that's sort of what I did. That's how I managed it. And you know, that's sort of how, and, it, and it, everything died down uh, for the most part. And, you know, my dad's still on first take, you know, he's still, he's on Howard Stern this morning. So he's still thriving, you know, Twitter's not going to stop him. You know, my dad's a tough, you know, my dad's a tough SOB. So he's not going to stand out to anybody. So, I give my dad credit for speaking his mind, but obviously it was misconstrued <clears throat> and went took it the wrong way. But I know things have died down and you just gotta remember, stay out of the Twitter pothole. Once you do that, you'll be okay. It, it just, when I saw it happening and I was on Twitter and I was talking to him back and forth because of, and then a few days later, he ended up going, leaving the country, going to Scotland for a Like that whole situation just did not, it, it, it didn't sit right with me. And like I told you in the beginning, you know, at least this is how I was raised. When you attack one of us, you attack everybody. And dog, 
for me he doesn't have to do it but just just the nature of who he is looks at me as a member of his family and in return i look at him as a member of mine one of my grandfathers died at an early died in a died when i was at an early age over 10 years ago so i look at him as a uh as a second grandfather to me but that i just hate the fact that you know he had to go through that you and every everybody with with the russo last name had to basically see their father, their husband, uncle, whatever, you know, having their name in the news like that in a, in a negative way, which which uh, was a uh, shame to see. Uh, but speak, but speaking, tying with the with the JJ Reddick thing, I first take to a more positive light. Uh, I recall a few years ago when you were at the University of Tampa that you were fortunate enough to either have a telephone conversation, you had some form of an encounter with the legendary Stephen A. Smith while you were down at the University of Tampa. Uh, give the audience, uh, do I have that read right? Give, and if so, uh, give the audience a couple of minutes on that. Oh yeah, so it was when I was a sophomore um, in college at Tampa and you know, generally my dad comes to probably about two games, it depends on the weekend, uh, but he usually comes to like that first weekend of games um, and that's generally around maybe a little before Thanksgiving. So I think my sophomore year we were playing, you know, I, I'm pretty sure Tampa was in that tournament that we, that we hosted with Alabama Huntsville, um, and Montevallo. And he came to those, and he came to those two games and it was our turn, uh, to host. Um, and then my junior year, we, uh, we, we went over to Alabama, but anyway, make long story short, um, that was when I was living with two of the basketball players um, and the other manager, you know, and the other manager that worked alongside me. So I decided to have my dad, you know, take us all out to dinner, sort of as like a uh, get to know you sort of roommate type of thing. So we went out to dinner, and um, one of the and then the, one of my roommates who was the player, Anthony, um, he was a senior at the time, and you know he was voicing you know his his love for Stephen A. Smith to my dad. Cause my dad was saying all these cool stories about all, you know, all the, some of the radio people he knows and he mentioned Stephen A. Smith. So then Anthony sort of, sort of goes like into like a fanboy mode, um, which I sort of told him to sort of chill with um, after the fact, but nonetheless, it got him a phone call, you know? So my dad had Stephen A. Smith call Anthony um, that afternoon or no, the next day sort of like hype him up because I'm not sure why, he, I don't know. I don't know why he, we, uh, why he asked for that, but I think it was because Anthony may have been in like a shooting slump to start off the year. Um, and I think it was just to sort of get Anthony back on track. Cause I guess I had told my dad how good of a shooter he was and he didn't really know how to get out of a shooting slump. And I didn't really know how to, how to sort of talk him out of it as a friend. So my dad had Stephen A. Smith call him. And of course, Anthony, the dope that he is, he doesn't answer the phone because it was an unknown number. So then Stephen Smith just leaves like a two minute voicemail, you know, pretty much saying, um, you know, you have a lot of love uh, from the Russo family, you know, Mad Duck takes care of you, you know, Tim takes care of you, you know, just go out there and keep shooting. And it was something along those lines. And nonetheless, you know, we played Rollins at Rollins, I think like a week or so later and Anthony has 39 points <laughs> and we win the game. So, and it, it just goes. That's all a monitor. I yeah. guess your dad's alma mater. How about that? Hundred <laughs> percent, and and it made me feel really good too, uh, because uh, because I know Tom Kluesman, who's the head coach over at Rollins. So, 
Um, so I think that sort of phone call sort of woke him up a little bit and he turned out to have a, and he turned out to have a pretty good year. I think he shot like maybe 39, 40% from the three and probably averaged about 13 to 15 points a game. So I think he had a pretty good senior year after that phone call, or I guess after that voicemail. So, and I guess he never tried calling him back cause it was an unknown number. So God forbid it would have been like a, almost like a one-time thing. Um, but nonetheless, you know, he, you know, he, he scored 39 points in that Rollins game and he had a pretty good year. And then he went on to go to go play overseas in Portugal for a little bit. So it all same, uh, um, you know, like it all sort of came um, together, which was great. Um, and my dad, of course, likes to take credit for it. So uh, that was sort of my interaction with Stephen. But I, I've not met him in person yet. Um, I know Colin has once before, um, but I'm sure one of these days I'll get to meet him. I know that uh, sort of my schedule doesn't really line up with his and my dad's is sort of much, is a lot different too. So you know, but I guess that was like one of the cooler moments that I sort of had, um, even if it wasn't with Stephen A. Smith directly, it was it was with uh, a member of the team that I was working for. And, you know, he just decided to go crazy and, you know, make like eight threes and against Rollins. So that definitely made that game really sweet. That's pretty phenomenal. Now, if I have this read correctly as well, and I believe that I do, last summer you and your dad went out golfing to uh, Pebble Beach out in California for oh, yeah. a few days. Give the audience a, a bit of a perspective of what it was like golfing at that uh, at that historic golf course. Yeah, so, you know, it was a big graduation gift because um, I guess a comment my dad likes to use is, uh, we didn't think you'd go to college, much less graduate from one. And then at that point, I had decided to go to UConn as a graduate school. So we really didn't think I'd move on to a second school um in turn, especially to get my master's but anyway so we go to pebble beach um for a graduation gift of mine which was really extremely generous and was it was so much fun um we played pebble beach twice we played cyprus which is the course that jim nance belongs to um and then we we played spanish bay um and then we played spyglass and then we played uh tiger woods's little par three which was which is still under construction at the time like the clubhouse and things of that nature, but we were able to go out there and play, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it was just, that was another surreal experience um, because you never really picture yourself playing at these top courses. Um, and I really didn't play that well. And I really think I was good enough to be playing at that point last year, I was probably about maybe a 23, 24 handicap. Now I'm, now I'm about a 19. Um, so I've gotten a lot better over the year, but obviously I didn't, play my best golf up until about the last day um which is when on we played pebble beach the last day and i had parred six seven eight ten and eleven so i parred five in the course of six holes ending the front nine into the second which was pretty cool and i shot i think that did like a 96 to end of the day uh which is i thought was outstanding but i guess the highlight of it all was sort of hanging out with jim nance um, you know, cause obviously, you know, we were able to get on to Cypress, which is Jim Nance's, uh, golf course. And, you know, my dad, you know, made a couple calls and he was able to get a hold of him. And we got ourselves a tea time somewhat in like the middle part of the morning. We raced over there. Uh, we played through, we had a caddy cause obviously, you know, uh, they don't do a lot of golf carts out there just cause it's a very, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's just because they don't want the golf course damaging the grass or anything of that nature. So. And obviously, you know, when like when you go to the Pebble Beach area, you know, they expect you to have money, I guess, so I suppose. And it's and it's extremely expensive too. 
Uh, so we had a caddy with us and he sort of showed us the ropes throughout Cyprus. It's, it's a very difficult course. I probably shot like 107 that day, which is pretty piss poor. But the fact that I was playing Juventus course was pretty phenomenal. So then we get to the 18th hole and I'm probably about maybe 18, 19 feet away from the cup. And all, all of a sudden, you know, my dad finishes up the hole, I think, and I'm like 18, 19 feet away. And then, and then all of a sudden I see my dad sort of throw his hands in the air as I'm trying to read the putt and it's Jim Nance on like one of the balconies. Um, or I guess one of like the sort of like the terrace um, of like the clubhouse. So then, you know, he comes racing over. I mark my ball because uh, I'm going to want to lose it. And we, we, had a, we had a lot of time because no one was behind us. So, so the gymnast comes on to the 18th hole and he says, Tim, Tim, just go, just go, just, uh, uh, just go putt, just go putt. So I go back to my ball and then like he announces it like, like he almost announces my putt. He's like, at the 18th wow. hole, we have Timmy Russo coming in for birdie. And nonetheless, I, I, I you know, um, I made the 18th foot putt. And Jim Nance is like, oh, wow, Tim Russo coming in hot, saving his, saving his paw or whatever it was. And then I walk up to him. I'm like, Mr. Nance, that was the coolest thing you've ever done. And that's, which is awesome. So, and then, and then, we, and then he had us at lunch in the clubhouse, which was really, really cool. So that was sort of like a really cool experience, you know, meeting another sort of guy like that. And this one was a little more direct than obviously with a Stephen A. Smith, you know, that was through another, another uh, member of, of another friend of mine. Um, but this, you know, but that was pretty sweet. That was pretty sweet. And then he took us to his house to sort of show us around. Well, well, first he was going to show us around like Pebble Beach, like some of the cool spots he likes to go to. Um, and then he takes us to his house, which has like a little, like maybe 80, like 80 yard sort of downhill. Um, a replica from the masters in his backyard. Pretty yeah, much. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And I could send you the video, but, um, there's a video of my dad getting ready to hit the ball and the balls are little like rubber, like little things. So then Jim Nance says, hold on a second. He goes to his phone and obviously there's like the rocks would have like the speakers. So he turns on the master's music and he, and he, um, and he announces my dad's shot. We are live now from Pebble beach with Christopher Russo. He hits the ball and he hits on the green. My dad gets all excited, which is pretty cool. So then, you know, just the fact that we were hitting golf balls, you know, just, even if it was like little chip shots in his backyard, um, and we met his wife, who was very nice, um, told us a bunch of stories about him and his kids. It was just a really cool, cool experience. And that was definitely one I will for sure cherish and be extremely grateful for. And, and, I, and, I, had wrote, and I had written him a thank you note. Um, and then he texted my dad. He said I was a special kid. So I guess that was a, that was a pretty good, uh, pretty good positive um, aspect that I had to hold on to, which is good. So. I tell you, having Jim Nance announce your golf shots and getting a tour from his house and meeting them and having that, that's that's a pretty damn good experience. Jim Nance, one of my favorite uh, broadcasters in the industry as well, does a superb job with their, their apples and oranges when it comes to the different types of sports with golf and uh, with golf and football. But he's excellent at both. He's excellent at now we have Tiger Woods approaching the green here on 18. He's great at ball. He's got Jamar Chase down the sideline. He's got it. Jamar Chase for the touchdown. 100%. He's he's great. He's great at both and one. And I swear to you, Tim, 
with the subject of Jim Nance. When I when the AFC Championship game and the and you and the feeling of anticipation, knowing that the Bengals are going to go to the Super Bowl after we intercepted Mahomes in overtime, you got that. It, it was getting greater and greater, and then when they lined up to kick the field goal, I play it now. And every single time he says it, I get chills up my spine. <laughs> When, yes. when, Jim, when Jim Nass gets on a microphone and, and says, said, yeah, he's like, a month ago, this sentence would have sound incomprehensible. So he's kind of like setting it up as if it's like that game-winning putt on 18 to win the Masters. But he's like, yeah. a month ago, this sentence would have sound incomprehensible. Yeah. One yards. McPherson kicks the Bengals to the Super Bowl. Like, oh, like I, oh, I get chills just thinking about it. But he is a, uh, he is when it comes to the great broadcast. Your father always gets on me because I, because Nance is here, Buck is the Buck, not here. Buck is here, and and uh, and Nance is here. Your father gives me a hard time about it all the time. I was like, Nance has it. Buck doesn't have it, but that's a phenomenal experience. Uh, with Jim Nance speaking, staying on the same subject, are there any other celebrities, public figures, or uh, athletes that you've been been fortunate enough to meet? I know I saw. I went back. I was doing a little homework to prepare for this interview. I went back in your Twitter archives and saw that you and your brother had taken a picture so many years ago with the late great Michael K. Williams of the Wire when he showed up at uh, at your father's uh, Mike and the Mad Dog. Uh, I believe it was. 30-year reunion show a few years back at a Radio City. I think City. it was. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was, like, for the Radio City Music Hall. It was for that charity. Um, and, yeah, so he showed up to that. Or, or I think he made, it was, was one of the other. He, he, you might, it was at Radio City Music Hall, I believe. Um, and he, you're, right, you're right, 100%. He showed up, and he was, like, in, like, that back room with, like, you know, sort of like the ballroom, and, you know, I sort of just walked up to him, and I was like, listen – I'm a huge, huge fan because because I had I had a, I had a big love for Boardwalk Empire, you know, like that was a, sort of my dad and I show um, when I was playing with you know w- with uh, Steve Buscemi, um, and I was just he was one of my favorite actors, um, in, in that show just because of his demeanor, just of his presence, like you could just tell he's just like a mean, just like struggled guy, and I don't know, just he just really caught my eye in that show, so I just had to say hello to him and. You know, he was he was nice enough to, to you know to to uh, take a picture with me and my brother, which was awesome. Uh, that was a really cool experience meeting him and a lot of other guys showed up to that to that event too. I think Victor Cruz was there, uh, Matt, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick was there. Um, yeah, it was. It was, I mean, like, I think just meeting him was was really was really cool because. I mean, I I had known him for Boardwalk, but I had never seen Wire, and then I had tuned into that little while ago and I didn't realize how great it was in that so it's extremely exciting to see that he you know that he is um no longer with us but I think just meeting him was another just really cool experience and I and, I, and I'm not sort of the one to uh you know to sort of toot my own horn or or, or to sort of show off with you know with some of these people that I've met um a lot of it has just sort of been really lucky you know I haven't really like like none of this is sort of planned you know everything's just sort of just lucky um, and, and, and I mean that in the most humble way possible. I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people who just sort of goes around and shows pictures on my phone of the famous people that I've met, you know, like I bet, you know, people who do that, or I don't know, I, I don't know how to say it, but I, I'm definitely not one of those people. So I think just, 
with you doing your homework, which I give you a lot of credit for because you you sent you certainly did your diligence with this interview. So I give you 100 percent, you know, credit there. Um, but again, you know, some of these people are just some of the nicest people ever. And um, I've been extremely fortunate to have, you know, so much as a little of a conversation with these uh, with these people. And, um, you know, some of them have been just truly um, inspiring for me to meet and just to gain their perspective. And even if it's like a 30 second conversation. So I think just having them sort of, uh, you know, take a picture of me or talk to me, whatever it is, you know, I got I, I to thank my dad for that for sure. But um, it's just one of those things where I'm not going to go too crazy about, but, you know, for sure those are pretty surreal experiences. Get the impression after, and I've been listening to your dad on the radio seven years. I get the impression listening to him calling in, having his number, talking with him all these years that um, that he instilled in his children that just because we may go on more luxurious vacations, we may have more money, we may we may live in a different tax bracket than the majority of middle class America. You're still you're a you're still my children, and and I hear this all the time from from a lot of black celebrities. Like Steve Harvey, there's a famous line he said in the Kings of Comedy where his kid complains that he that he wants all the pair of shoes before you know go school going shoe shopping right at the beginning of school and his kid says i don't understand we got the money steve harvey pauses and hesitates and he says we ain't got shit daddy is the one that has the money <laughs> so i get the so i get the feeling not necessarily in that kind of blunt that blunt attitude behind it but i get the feeling that your dad kind of said listen you're at I am more than willing to to share my fortune and to share my luxuries with my children, but you guys still got to go out there and bust your hump and and make and make a name for yourself, and not necessarily right off of Christopher Michael Russo's coattails. And he also, I get the feeling, instilled in you guys not to carry yourself with that snobby, better than you. I'm I'm Christopher Russo. I I have the Russo last name, and you're not type of type of attitude. One of the reasons why he one of the reasons why and it, it was so peculiar because when I met him last July, uh, last July when he was here in Baltimore, he asked me. He was like, John, how in the world did you? How did you? How did you find me? And how, how do you find such a liking? And and you know, how are we so connected? You, t- you, a black kid from Baltimore, taking such a liking to, to some old white, some old white guy from New York, I, and I and I basically explained to him it was like, dog, the way that you carry yourself on the air and with the radio, you carry yourself as a regular everyman that makes himself personable to anybody listening or watching on TV that is willing to give you a chance. You can you can connect with you can connect with a you can connect with you can connect with Jewish white people, Christian white people, Catholic white people. You can connect with Muslims. You can connect with black, white, middle middle class, upper middle class. The you know the the top one the top one percent, the Coach K's of the world. 
the perfect, you know, the uh, the professional athletes are the '60s of the '50s. Even the modern day players, with with the small amount of them that are out there, that like you and the Calais Campbells of the world, like you know how to connect and how to make yourself personable to people on the level, such as using the avenue of sports. And I get the fan that, you, that your father instilled in you, not just with you and with Colin talking to him, and I'm not even quite sure with, with your other with your other siblings, but probably the same thing about how they instilled in you not to make yourself too high and mighty and to keep yourselves low and to keep your and to keep yourselves home. And, and just in short, I get the feeling that you guys weren't that you guys weren't that kid whose parents were rich and whose parents were were famous and everybody knew about it. It was oh yeah, here's uh, his dad's you know like an afterthought sort of thing. Am I right in that establishment on that assessment? Uh, where do where do you feel? Am I uh, in the ballpark of what I'm speaking on or no? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I think you know one of the biggest things I sort of carry with myself is you know. My dad is who he is, you know. Now it's my turn to make a name for myself, you know. Like, I don't want to be referred to as Mad Dog's kid, you know, even though that carries weight in some aspects, especially in the sport industry. I'm trying to crack the coaching business, you know, I'm going to have to use that. But I want to make my own name. You know, my dad, you know, he's 62, 63 years of age, but, you know, he's, you know, he has his own life. You know, I want my own sort of legacy. So that's sort of what I carry with myself. And, you know, like when I first started at Tampa, you know, like, the coaches didn't know who my dad was until like that January. So I had went from August to January of not telling anybody about my dad until the head coach walks up to me. He says, how come you didn't tell me your daddy was famous? And he was like a Southern, you know, old school, you know, 78 year old guy who didn't really know what, you know, what sports talk was about. And the assistant who was, who, who was the mentor, you know, uh, Justin Pekka, he told the head coach and, you know, I guess they had sort of put the pieces together. So like they had no idea either. And then, Going into UConn, you know, obviously, you know, uh, my dad is pretty good friends with Tom Moore, who's an assistant over here. And um, I know one of the GAs who's now a video coordinator, uh, Matt Johnson from Tampa. So, like, they knew who my dad was, but I don't go around sharing that. Like, the other managers who are in the undergraduate level, who are just, like, the regular freshmen, sophomore, juniors at UConn, like, I didn't go about telling them until probably, like, that Thanksgiving. So, and, and I had started in that May. So I had done my best to just keep it on the low, not because I'm embarrassed, but because I don't want to, you know, showcase that to start off when I'm meeting people, um, you know, and I know some people um, are probably going to listen to this and probably going to say, well, Tim, you're like, you're nuts, like blah, 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 this other thing. Well, I mean, I want my own legacy, you know, I don't want people to sort of get the wrong idea of who I am. So that's just sort of one of the things that I just keep true to myself and, just I want to I want to have my own legacy. So I'm just you know that's where uh, that's where it comes from, and you know just sort of keep at it. And you know my dad knows that the coaching route is hard. It's extremely difficult to crack the business. So I'm gonna have to use his help and use his resources, which is fair. I mean you know it's all about connections, especially in the sport industry. And you know given his name, I'm gonna have to use have to use that as like a little bit of weight, you know, to carry my name if I want to get you know go to like a mid major and you know, like a start off there or whatever. But you know, but for starters, I want to go by his Tim Russo, not Mad Dog's kid, Timmy Russo. I want to go by Tim Russo. So that's sort of, um, so, you know, like that's sort of the title I want to go about with it. But you hit around to the head, Jai. I give you a lot of credit for doing your homework. You know, you're extremely diligent. And I give you I give you a ton of credit for, you know, for having all this sort of in the back of your mind. So 
that's definitely makes uh, that's definitely made this interview a lot more enjoyable. Hundred <laughs> percent. I got I got to do my homework, or else this interview would be trash. And can you please, for the sake of the audience, you know, people tell me all the time, like Jai, you're a good-looking kid. You know, you play sports. You ask, you know, you're athletic. You know, I try to make myself look as good as I possibly can. I, you know, I, I do what I do. But people tell me all the time on Twitter, it's like Jai. You know, you're 20 years of age. You know, you're in college. You say the fact that basically you that your buddies with Christopher Mendoza Russo, and I'll get you all the leads. Can you please explain to the audience that Christopher Mendoza Russo is not a is not a ticket to to uh to, to to the Playboy Mansion because people tell me all the time, well, just say you know Mad Dog, all of a sudden the ladies be all over you. I'm like, guys, no, that's that that's that that's 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 not how it works. So can you please clarify? For the audience, that uh, that that the the Christopher that that the Christopher Russo name, as great and as magnificent and as powerful as it is, it isn't necessarily a one way ticket to uh, to 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 Bachelor Paradise. Oh, 100 percent. To be honest with you, I tried to use the the Russo name as you know um, as as sort of like a ticket, but I promise you right now, the ladies don't know who my dad is. I promise you that. Um, you know, the and, and, the lady, and, and the ladies don't know him, and he doesn't know the ladies. So, you know, he was on Howard Stern last year, and you know, I think they were talking about, you know, some actresses and whatnot. And my dad's like, "Who is Margot Robbie?" And, and Howard Stern's like looking at him like he lives under a rock. So I promise you, it, it, even if you try to use the Mad Dog name, that will not help you in any in any shape or form, hundred um, percent. And you know, it's, it's, I, I guess it's, I I don't. I wouldn't say, um, I, I was lost my train of thought. I, 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 would, I would suppose that the Russo name would be good for like job hunting, but it's all about getting your foot in the door. And if, and if my dad is any helpful with myself or my brothers or you or whoever the case may be, you know, like it's only going to grant you an interview. Like you have to, you have to be good um, by yourself. Like you have to like show a personality. You have to, um, like you have to have some charisma. You have to have some knowledge. So like you're not, it's not just him, you know, and he doesn't carry that much weight to where it's like, oh, my God, like, we have to hire you. Oh, my God, you're good looking. Oh, my God, this and the other thing. No, like, you know, like, okay, we know Mad Dog, but what can you do? So I think that's sort of where I get it from. But with the ladies, for sure, yeah, they do not know. They wouldn't know my dad if he fell on them. I know that sounds really bad, but they really, he really, they really would not know who he is. So definitely don't try that at home. <laughs> Alan told me when I had him on for the first time that he goes out of his way to act goofy whenever he would invite a girl or some group of friends over to, to the house. Would he pull the same crap uh, with you and, and 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 turn the Mad Dog dial up to 100? Or uh, or was he the type of father that stayed? Because was he the type of father that kind of stays low-key, mellow, and out of the way? I, th I think he certainly does sort of stay out of the way. Um I think, I think it's sort of tough. I think it depends, you know, like whenever I have like my buddies over, my dad always feels the need to like, you know, show up to the room that we're watching the game in or whatever the case is. And he'll say, hello, how are you? You know, and I think it'll just, you know, like uh, he'll just show face. But when it comes to like the mad dog sort of um, switch, he won't go too crazy. Um, it just depends on the situation. You know, like my buddy Tyler, you know, I invite him over all the time to watch them. Uh, some games um and you know he always you know comes into the room 
um, and just sort of talks high school basketball because obviously that's where he met Tyler or I guess more so in the middle school basketball, but he'll talk about like our high school coach, he'll talk about college. So like, so he'll just come in and, and just sort of just like talk shop, but like he won't, he won't go too crazy at the Mad Dog Russo. There was only, um, only a handful of times that that's what sort of happened, but I think he knows when to sort of turn on the switch and, and to when to sort of keep it low. But generally speaking, you know, like he'll just be um, watching TV in his office or, you know, watching the game, whatever the case is. Um, but he's usually pretty mellow once he comes back from work, just because obviously, you know, I think he just needs to recharge for the rest of the day. So that's sort of his sort of mood there. But um, yeah, you know, I, I think that's sort of that dynamic there when it comes to, you know, him sort of showing up in the, um, in like the group setting for sure. If it's like a bigger setting, like my sister's birthday party, like he'll sort of, I think it was one time my sister, it was, my sister was turning, she was turning 17 or 18 and we had her birthday party um at Shorehaven which is the club they that we belong to and my sister was sort of calling him over and my dad sort of goes in the middle of like the, the mosh pit of dancing my dad's not a dancer as you know like his dance moves go pretty much from this which like the arms sort of wave almost like you're um cheering for your ball club or he'll just jump around and this time he was just like he was just like moving his hands, like, come on. And he just starts jumping up and down. So that's when he sort of turns it on. That's what tries to be goofy. But other than that, if it's like a larger group, then sure. But smaller groups, yeah, he just to stay low. I am dying to know what your taste and your interest in music is. Because let me tell you, to me, what I got to go through. I got to go <laughs> through me. I texted him on Monday morning that Monday was a 19 year anniversary of Beyonce's Dangerously in Love album coming on. I texted him because me and him go back and forth because he swears that Joni Mitchell is the greatest thing since sliced bread. I texted him, I said, track number one is an all timer. Track number one on Beyonce's Dangerously in Love is, of course, the all time hit Crazy in Love. He texts me back with sarcasm. Sure, it is. I text back with a laughing emoji. He responds back. Did she write the songs, play an instrument on them? Seriously, I don't know the answer. I text, I text him the songwriter columnist via the Wikipedia page. I said, she writes her own stuff. She isn't a musician. She doesn't play an instrument. She makes up for it by dancing. He says, so she has co-writers. I said, well, yeah, Jay-Z had to write his own rap verse. He says, how can you compare her to Joni, who writes every song solo and plays every instrument on her albums, every one, guitar, harmonica, piano. I text, I text him back the billboard charts of where Crazy and Love finished on the top 100. And then I highlight the accolades and legacy where in 2018 and 2019, Rolling Stone called it, it was 16 on Rolling Stone's list last year of the great of, of the 500 greatest songs of all time and in 2018 it was on the list of 100 greatest songs of the 21st century thus far uh i say uh, i say this is this is how beyonce is great she isn't prince but she is one of this generation's greatest artists he goes oh come on because of billboard bruce never billboard what does that mean i said the billboard top 100 he says she's a singer Joni is a musician no comparison I said, nobody walking the streets of Midtown Manhattan knows who Joni Mitchell is. He says, the important people do in her heyday is 40 years ago. Uh, yeah, I said, 
you know whose heyday was 40 years ago? Michael Jackson and Princess, who both blow her out of the water. He said, if you knew anything about Joni, I could talk to you, but you don't. So what's the point of even debating? Next thing you're going to tell me that is, is that Bob Dylan is a zero. I said, I love debating you on things outside of sports like movies and like music and movies and such. Bob Dylan is good. I have it in my library. I'm more well-versed musically than you give me credit for. And that was the end of the conversation. So I am dying for you because he goes crazy about the Joni Mitchell, the Crosby, the, all the garbage music that he, garbage that he subjects me and, and his audience to on a day in, day out basis for three hours. That's, if you do the math to me, that's three hours a day, five times, that's 15 hours a week. I got it. I got to hear those stupid songs from those from those hokey 60s bands. It's enough. Please tell me that you have a better that you have better taste in music than your father. Please tell me that if I were to go through your playlist, I'd be able to find some Beyonce, some Michael Jackson, some Prince, some Jay-Z, some Biggie Smalls, Dr. Dre. And please tell me that your music taste is exponentially better than that of your father's, which is in the toilet. I would say, <laughs> Tony Mitchell, that's right on the money. Uh, well, he, he fell in love with Laurel Canyon, which is like that documentary of like the old musicians in the 50, in the 60s and 70s. Um, when they would sort of hightail over to the California area in the Napa Valley, I believe it was, to sort of write music to, uh, with one another. So like, you'll hear a lot of Mamas and the Papas, uh, the Doors, uh, the Birds, uh, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown. Like you'll hear a lot of those sort of artists sort of come out of his mouth. The Carpenters, Bob Dylan, etc. So I think <laughs> his music is certainly a little more old school. Um, unfortunately, I will have to say that the Bruce Springsteen sort of rubbed off on me. I'm a huge Bruce Springsteen fan. I went to go see him in uh, when he was promoting the when he's promoting Wrecking Ball, which I think is in 2012, 2013, one of those years. And we saw him at MetLife. Um, and I think just after seeing Bruce Springsteen in person, I was just like, wow, like that was a performance. Uh, but obviously, like I obviously have my favorite rappers. You know, um, I love Kendrick Lamar. I love Drake. Um, I love Jay Z. Um, you know, so I, I definitely have a little bit more of a diverse and a little bit more of a variety of music that I listen to, um, especially those that sort of pump me up in terms of like a sports setting or a competitive atmosphere. Uh, but my dad does love the Joni Mitchells of the world. He definitely loves Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, and I think the biggest thing with, with you know with those sort of artists is that you know during the pandemic when there weren't a lot of sports. Well, actually, when there were no sports, you know, we would watch the uh, not only would we watch the Laurel Canyon documentary, uh, but we would also watch like the 70s and 80s and 90s basketball games, which are all on YouTube, like, uh, you know, uh, with the full games. So, like, you know, we probably watched maybe a dozen Larry Bird games, a dozen Kareem Abdul-Jabbar games in the 70s. So that was a lot of his sort of substance in his radio shows, which is sort of crazy to think about you know, that he was able to fill three hours of it with pretty much old footage that he's seen and, you know, use it to to sort of compare it to today's day and to, you know, just to create some sort of juice. And I think another thing that sort of saved him was, you know, getting into the music business because you know, I think he had uh, David Crosby on his show. I think it was, I think it was David Crosby. I could be wrong, but I think you had him like on his show, uh, which you know, you know, which killed a good hour. So I think that he's been able to sort of maneuver with what he talks about on the radio. Obviously it's not all sports. You know, he likes to have writers on, you know, he likes to have musicians. He likes to talk about music. He'll do comparison of music. He'll, he'll just do a bunch of history. So, I mean, I think he loves doing the presidents in terms of like ranking them in, uh, off, off of his opinion. So 
my music is for sure a lot more has a lot more of a variety. You know, I'm not one of those oldies who just likes to listen to Frank Sinatra or whatever. Um, I, I mean, you know, I'm not gonna lie to you. I have listened to a lot of those songs because you know, all my dad does is sort of play those on the uh, um, on the YouTube and then he'll FaceTime me and he doesn't know how to work his phone. So like, if, if I'm like holding the phone like I am now, he'll turn the phone and he'll be like, Tim, look. Obviously there's a button on the phone that you could press the camera and the camera flips and I have to move the phone, but he'll like, he'll, he'll legitimately turn the phone as if you're showing me the TV. I'm like, dad, go to the camera, it'll flip. I don't know how to do that, just, just watch the damn thing. So I'm watching and I'm watching the mamas and the papas, whatever it is, the birds. So he, he gets really into that. So I, I, it gives him another thing to sort of listen to. Um, and it gives him another thing to talk about with radio and creating more substance. And I think it also gives him a break from sports. You know, I think all he does is talk about sports. And I think the good thing about the debating, as you've done with my dad, the debating is so good that it it's it's rubbed up on me, you know. I'm I'm like very similar, with, you know. With I don't want to go back too far, um, with what we were talking about, but I guess to sort of pivot really quick with JJ Redick, you know, saying that Bob Cousy played with firemen and plumbers and all that, you know, the Bob Cousy was turning on Twitter for like a month straight, like in the top twenty, and I had just started the Bob Cousy argument here at UConn, and everyone gets a kick out of it because everyone calls me crazy. Everyone says I don't know anything about basketball, which is what my dad does every day. You know, he he compares music. He compares he he, just, he does does it with you on text. You know, he compares music. He does the sports. He does the players. So and and I think that's just one of the things that's just so great about it about him is that he's extremely he can create juice and he's not afraid to make people yell at him or he's he, like or he's not afraid, he's not afraid of what people think. So. I think just from a, from a debate standpoint, it's sort of funny, and I get a kick out of it too because I love I love Bob Cousy, um, and I guess with the music, um, you know, it just it gave it gave him something else other than sports, which I think um, made him more motivated during the pandemic, especially to go out there and do a talk show for three hours and not get bored or not get stuck. So um, I hope that answers your question. I know it's sort of a lengthy answer, but yeah, as all my answers have been today, but hope that's I hope that answers it well. Uh, you've done an excellent job, Tim. It makes him more of a well-versed talk show host. Are uh, you a Justin Timberlake guy at all? Um, occasionally, not much. I I loved him in the Social Network. I love that movie. Got you got a song of Justin's that you like? Oh Jesus! Uh, you can make me do this now. Um, what's the one about the stars? I'm not very good. I'm not very good at the songs. I'm just like my dad. I'm like what? <laughs> Not the stars. No. What's it? Um, what's that song? What's it? Yes, I love that song. Yeah, Mayors. Yeah, that that's a good one. I like uh, one of my favorite ones because I like that R&B type stuff. I like, don't be so quick to walk oh. away. Yes, yeah. want to rock your body, please stay. Yes, yeah. you don't have to admit you that you want like to play. Yes, yes. let me rock you to the break. Yes, this mm. me. I love this. I love Timmy. You should consider you, music, Jai. You should consider music. You, <laughs> my, my my family hates it when I sing. They can't stand it. But I I, I love I love that song. Next, 
Next time you go to a party or something, you see somebody that catches your eye, put on that song and and tell and tell and let me and let me know how the story ends. But anyway, I'll keep that in mind. Off, we're, we're getting off the beaten path. Uh, we are now back to we'll get we. I got two questions regarding the females, and then I will go to the sports to wrap things up. Um, Celebrity crush. You mentioned that your father doesn't know Margot Robbie from uh, from Pamela Anderson. So was was there any female growing in your teenage years and even now at twenty four uh, that that catches the mind and catches the uh, eye and attention of one of Timothy Russo? I think growing up, because I was a big Harry Potter fan. Growing up, I loved Emma Watson. Loved her. I don't know why. I just, I think she played her character phenomenally as Hermione. And I think that her storyline um, is both sad, but also uplifting. So I, I think that I would go with Emma Watson growing up. But today, if I had to choose one, like as of like, as a 23 year old, I would say Madeline Klein from Outer Banks. I just think, oh, Jai. Madeline Klein. Sarah Cameron from Outer Banks. Come on, Jai. I don't watch TV. I watch Sopranos reruns and it's Orioles and Nationals. That's it. Oh, Matt, geez. What is, how do you spell it? How do you spell that? M-A what? M-A-D-E-L-Y-N, I believe. And then Klein, C-L-I-N-E. It's from Outer Banks. Come on, Jai. Oh, watch television get off my back. <laughs> ah, gorgeous. So I, I really fell in love with her when in the first season. Season two had come out uh, maybe maybe about it was back, it was like last fall, maybe. And I think there's another season in the works now, but I think she's probably my celebrity crush at the moment. What about yourself, Jai? It's funny, me and you, I think it was, no, it wasn't you that I got, or your brother that I got into this debate with. It was something, it was another guess I had. My celebrity crush, I, I, celebrity crush, I, I got like a 1A and a 1B. Celebrity crush is the one and only Ashley Graham. I still got, I still got something for her, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit model, uh, the, the 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 if you know anything about me to me when it comes to women of a caucasian descent the brunettes over the blondes for me that that that's 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 okay. your truly sports day and that yes. with the brown eyes it's just oh my goodness it, it'll it'll melt it'll melt you she looks at you she'll melt you for god's sake <laughs> um so uh so that's her but the one, and we're not counting people that you see on IG, they don't count. But the one that that has, and if and the people that listen to my show know where I'm going with this, the one that really captures yours truly's attention is the one and only, not a celebrity, but a public figure who works in broadcasting, by the way, the one and only Joy Taylor. Okay. I, I, I feel like I knew that one. I feel like I knew that one. I feel like I knew that one. She's on with Colin Coward, right? Yep, 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 yep. I mean, okay. You, I mean, you want 
Tim, 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 Tim. Lord have mercy. That's that's all oh, I got. Oh Lord. Lord have mercy. Okay. Uh, and, uh, she is pretty. The the one your brother said, uh, the one your brother said, Margot Robbie can also, uh, you know, I also concur with that one too. Uh, there's not many. I'm not that big of a movie guy, but the movies that I have seen, uh, the list of women that have looked better than her in that movie is very, 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 very slim. But uh, yes. Anyway, as Stephen A. Smith would say, I digress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, getting yeah, getting. Let me ask you another one. Florida, you've lived in Connecticut in your life. Which state? Which state has the most attractive women? Connecticut or the state of Florida? I would say the state of Florida. Well, it, it's it's sort of tough, but I would say the state of Florida, um, just because I, I went to a. a I went to a school where we had two pools. So it was pretty crazy to see how many people not only frolic to the pools on campus, but you know, just the idea that I would go to class and then there'd be a, a, a woman come from the pool in her swimsuit or in like, or, or in just like a bathing suit of some kind. And I had never seen that before in Connecticut. So I was, it was honestly sort of, hard for me to sort of imagine at first obviously get to be more in tune with it and that doesn't always happen but if it's like a gorgeous like spring day you will see like women go to class like from the pool it's pretty crazy you know so i would say the state of florida um i definitely love being home in connecticut you know i definitely know a lot more people and i'm a little more comfortable i guess here in connecticut um just just in terms of just like talking with people and you know and sort of mingling but with the state of Florida, yeah, there were some, there were some gorgeous women down there. I definitely miss it for sure. Definitely miss the weather for sure. That's the biggest answer. The weather, women is great. Don't get me wrong, but but the idea of seeing a palm tree every day, that I just I just love seeing. I I love the tropical weather. That's that's one of my biggest things. Hopefully, I can find my way out of this uh, hellhole that is Maryland. Find my way near some palm trees and good-looking women. But anyway, uh, are there any special sporting events you've been to? Any World Series games, NBA Finals, Super Bowls, uh, national championship games, college basketball, and college football? Any big-time special sporting events that you uh, that you've been fortunate enough to attend, or no? Uh, I would say. I've been to a World Series game. Um, I've been to the Red Sox and the Rockies. I can't remember if that was in 04 and 08, but I've been to one of those. I, I can't remember. If, I can't remember. Uh, but it was when I was young, and I was wearing my Jonathan Papabon jersey because I love Jonathan Papabon. Number 59, no, no number 58. I love that because I, 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 I wore his number in like my soccer, um, on my soccer team because of him. So I love Jonathan Papabon and the Red Sox. Um, I've been to... Um, I've been to another Phillies Giants playoff matchup. It was when Tim Lincecum pitched against Roy Halladay and Cody Ross had two home runs down the left field line. Um, that was pretty amazing. I've been there with my dad. That was in Philly, by the way. Um, I've been to I've been to a U.S. Open in 2018. I think that was the year that Brooks Kepka won it uh, when it was a played at Shinnecock. Uh, I've been to that. Um, I've never been to an NBA final. Um, haven't really been to a lot of, oh, I've been to a, um, 
And I went, I think the biggest game, the most favorite game I've been to was when it was in 2018, because I'm a huge Pelicans fan. So my dad sent me to game four of Pelicans Blazers, uh, first round of the NBA playoffs in 2018. That was when the Pelicans uh, had beaten them 131 to 123 in overtime to move on to play against the Warriors in the second round. And that team had um, Etwan Moore, Rajon Rondo, Drew Holiday, Anthony Davis, Omir, uh, no, excuse me, um, Nikola Mirotic. Um, that, you know, they had a lot of my favorites. And that was when Anthony Davis had 47 points and Drew Holiday had 41 points or vice versa. But, you know, like they had combined for 88 points. And now, and that was when Damian Lillard had a terrible series. I think he had like, he maybe averaged 17, 19 points, and like 30% shooting. So Drew Holiday had a hell of a series. But I went to that game when they closed it out, um, which was pretty remarkable. So I went to New Orleans. I went there for like a day and a half. I think the game was on like a, on a Saturday. So we flew out on like that Friday morning. No. It was it was on a it was on a it was on a Saturday it was on Saturday so we flew out Saturday morning, went to the game Saturday night and then flew home on Sunday morning and we flew on Southwest which was not an easy flight because I'm not I'm not big on flights so I was, I was you know I thought I thought that was a tough flight for me to deal with from an anxiety standpoint but I went to that game which was remarkable I lost my voice and we were about seven rows behind the Blazers bench so you know we were seven rows behind Terry Stott so if you go back to that game you'll see me in my red Anthony Davis Pelicans jersey with with a short sleeve, a, a very short sleeve black t-shirt underneath. And I was screaming and clapping the whole way through. Um, and I'm behind the Blazers bench, but that was probably the craziest game I've ever been to because I made the Jumbotron and um, I was able to meet with Joel Myers after the game, who was the play-by-play -play announcer for the Pelicans. And then I'll never forget it. You know, I brought my friend Dan with me from college and as Dan and Joel were sort of, you know, talking shop for a couple of minutes, I look over at Anthony Davis. He's getting interviewed, I think, by Jennifer Hale. And, um, and, and I think him and I make eye contact. Um, I, and I'm going to ride with this story until I die. But I, he, him and I make eye contact. And I give him like a, heads and, uh, uh, like a head nod and like a finger point. It obviously indicating that he played a good game. And he came back at me. He nodded his head too, jogged off, and then he, like, and then he clapped his hands. And I'll take that as Anthony Davis looking at me, but obviously he's my favorite player at the time. This was four years ago. Um, so I think that moment in that game was probably the most memorable I've been to, if I had to say. So that Red Sox uh, Rockies game, that was in, that was, a, that was a world series game. Yeah. So it was in Boston. And they beat a, uh... They, uh, yeah, 07, because 04, they knocked off the Cardinals. 07, Rockies, 13, the Cardinals again, and then 18 against the Dodgers. Um, but, uh, but, and it's a good uh, segue with your Pelicans. I, I want to get your thoughts on how you thought that their season went, losing in six games, gave uh, the Suns an absolute run for their money, uh, made them work in those six games in the opening round. Uh, before I get to that, how in the world, is somebody from UConn, from, not from UConn, but from the state of Connecticut, how in the world do they end up a New Orleans Pelicans fan of all things? And are the yeah. Pelicans the only, your only favorite team that you have? Yeah, so that's sort of a strange story. But thank you for bringing that up. Um, I'm probably the only Pelicans fan in the state of Connecticut. But um, it was back in 2012 when Anthony Davis played for Kentucky. He was in the championship game against Kansas, to my knowledge. And that was like the first year that I had really paid attention to college basketball. Um, that was probably my seventh grade year. Um, 
you know, when I had, when I had just made um, the A team in, in my middle school basketball after being a reserve. Um, so I think having that confidence to go into college basketball was pretty, pretty cool. So then that was one of the moments where I sat in my dad's office and watched the full game with him. And that was like the first game I've sort of sat, you know, in full with. Um, so, and that was when Anthony Davis had averaged like five blocks and, um, you know, um, in that season. And my dad had made a comment, you know, Timmy, you know, you need to keep an eye on this Davis kid. He's a hell of a player. Cal probably tells you all the time he's going to be a great NBA player. So I'm like, all right, cool. Um, so I, I watch him. I, I, I automatically love his game. You know, runs up and down the floor. He's acrobatic. He blocks shots. He plays defense. He's team first. He's not tremendous offensively, but he catches lobs. He's a, he has a paint presence. He's just an all, he's just an all around good player. Um, and then it gets drafted by new Orleans. So I figured why not become a fan of the, uh, fan of the Hornets. Cause at that time they were the new Orleans Hornets and I didn't have an NBA team at the time. Um, I was just a fan of the NBA. Um, I think the year before I was a big fan of Derek Rose, but that wasn't really, I didn't really love the bulls that much. Uh, I, I just like watching him as a player. So I finally had like a reason to like a team and if it was, and it was crazy enough to be the Hornets and it was crazy enough to be the Hornets. So, I followed the I followed them the first year. I think they like I think they were twenty seven and fifty fifty five maybe. I think I think that was their first year record. And then after the first season, they changed the name of the Pelicans, uh, which was even more goofy. Um, and then obviously that carries over to the point where Anthony Davis requests his trade through Rich Paul, which I didn't love in any case scenario. But obviously in that time, I went to go see him live a couple times at the Knicks. Um, playing at the Nets at the Barclays Center. I went to the Smoothie King Center in New Orleans to watch that, as I just said, the game four in 2018. So I have lived through a lot of great Anthony Davis moments. Um, and when he decided to leave New Orleans and ask for a trade, I was heartbroken at first, but then I was like, you know what? The Pelicans are in a decent spot. They're going to get a lot for him from the Lakers. Why not? So I decided to stick with the Pelicans. Um, and that was obviously when they you know, received Lonzo Ball, you know, they received uh, Brandon Ingram, a couple picks, you know, so they had, which turned into, I think, Jackson Hayes and Akeel Alexander-Walker um, from Virginia Tech. And um, so I thought that, and obviously the Zion, and obviously Zion Williamson came about a year later. So I thought that everything was sort of going in my direction, um, which was great. Um, and then obviously, we, you know, we trade, and also, and obviously, you know, we lose Lonzo, um, you know, we, uh, we could see Jim McCollum in a big trade. Uh, we we get Stephen Adams, then we get rid of Stephen Adams for Jonas Valenciunas, if that's how you pronounce his last name. Valenciunas, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, this year was sort of an up and down year. You know, they started the year like 1-12. and 12. At one point, they were 3-13. and 13. They found a way to scratch and claw the way into the eighth seed, which I found was pretty remarkable. So I was – and I didn't get a chance to watch every game because I'm usually a basket-by-basket kind of fan. You know, that's just who I am. Um, even throughout high school, I would do my homework in front of the Pelican screen. So I have had several times where I've just watched straight 82 games and I've been heartbroken by every time they've lost to the Warriors or, you know, not made the playoffs, whatever the case may have been. And I know it's been sort of up and, um, up and down sort of franchise. But, uh, you know, after watching them play the Suns, I know that now I know that Willie Green is the right coach. You know, Stan, um, as in Van Gundy, you know, was a little more old school, a little more, um, a little bit more of like a, rustic kind of coach. I don't think the, you know, the young player really respected him that much. And I think he's a much better analyst as it is. Um, so I thought that Willie Green was a good hire. Um, and I definitely think that this McCollum trade was a good trade. 
you know, we just lack a point guard. And the biggest play of the game was when McCollum got his fifth foul in the third quarter when he was trying to guard CP3, who didn't who 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 couldn't miss a shot if he wanted to. I think he literally won 100 percent from the field with like with like 28 points and 11 assists. So he so he really gave he really he really kicked our asses. Um, but you know, we had a chance to you know make you know uh, put that series to seven games. And when Devin Booker got hurt, that was when I was really most confident. Um, but obviously, you know, Phoenix, you know, um, you know, they battled throughout the entire series. And Chris Paul uh, played very well in game six. Um, you know, New Orleans, you know, like they just had trouble scoring. And to be honest with you, they missed Zion Williamson, even though he was sort of like uh, uh, almost like a meerkat, you know, like he showed up and then like he disappeared or he disappeared to Portland in a rehab. So like, uh, you know, like uh, we missed him a little bit, which was sort of tough. And Brandon Ingram didn't have a great efficient game. Um, you know, McCollum was – you know, um, McCollum had a great game or a great start to the game, but then he got his fifth foul in the third quarter, which is a big question mark. Because I don't know why Willie Green would leave him in with four fouls. You know, Valanciunas had played hard, but he got play, outplayed by John Drayton in that game too. So a lot of things going to go our way. And obviously, you know, Chris Paul decided to, you know, go for 28 points. Like I think it was like 11 for 11 or 13 for 13 or something like that. Uh, but, you know, you know, I, I think the Pelicans are going to be a, a pretty hungry team next season. So I think that, the NBA should watch out for sure. You know, they're going to be in the middle of the pack. I think they'll be at least the sixth seed um, next season. I don't think they'll be in a play in, especially if Zion plays. He's the key for sure. But as you know, you know, he's already been to two, you know, uh, two surgeries, one with his foot, one with his knee. So we'll see if he lasts. So we'll see. But overall, very pleased with how the Pelicans sort of turned it around down the stretch of the season. Um, you know, it was definitely a bittersweet loss, but I was overall pretty proud of, you know, of them uh, battling throughout this, you know, battling through. A tough series against a one seed as an eight seed. So, that's certainly impressed the. I mean, when you make a when you make the playoffs through the playing tournament and then go up against the defending Western Conference champions and are able to take the series six games, win two games against the best team regular season record wise in the NBA, that there that's a lot to be proud of, and that certainly will be a confidence booster for the Pelicans heading into next season and uh, coming up in the fall. And like you said. If Zion shows up, if he's healthy and if he plays, Pelicans are going to be a a feisty, intriguing, entertaining team to watch this upcoming season. Do you have any other favorite teams? Do you have a favorite baseball team, favorite uh, football team, or is the Pelicans your favorite team? And that's that's really it. I would say the Pelicans um, are my favorite team. Or I guess they're like, you know, if we had to go through a list, you know, I think that the San Francisco Giants sort of rubbed off on me, you know, my dad's fandom for several years. So, um, and obviously I've been to a couple of Giants playoff games. So I think that that uh, baseball team has sort of rubbed off on me. So I, I, I consider them my favorite baseball team. I'm not as keen with baseball as I should, because uh, I'm obviously working basketball. So I have to be a little more um, invested with them. But I would say Pelicans are definitely number one. If I had to pick a second favorite team, I would say probably the San Fran Giants. Um, and then if I had to pick a third team, you know, I grew up like in the New York Giants in football, but I'm a big fantasy football nut. So I'm more so into the fantasy football. My dad hates that because, you know, you root for the player, not the team. And he gives you that whole speech every single year. I can't wait for it this season. Um, and then hockey, not hold really, on, hold on. you know. Hold on. He gives you a, a a speech before your fantasy football season. What? Yeah, he, he yeah he 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 really hates fantasy football. He's like Timmy, why would you play fantasy football? 
do a season bet or pick a team and follow them. You can't follow the player, Timmy. What are you doing? Gee whiz. So it's like I get that speech probably once a year. So I can't wait for it this fall. Um, I'm a big fan of football nut. Baseball is probably the San Fran Giants. Hockey, not really. Um, you know, the Giants I grew up with for football, but they're not, they really haven't been good over a decade. Um, but I would say that, and, and I've really gotten into watching golf. You know, I love watching these major tournaments. I love watching these. Um, I love watching Justin Thomas. I love watching Roy McIlroy. Um, and that's certainly a sport I've certainly started to love playing more so than watching. But I would say those are the two biggest teams, the Giants and then the Pelicans. Obviously, I'm going really nice with these answers, but I want to give you the best possible answer possible. Do not mind the way. It would be a boring interview if I were to ask you a question with a long setup and give me a one, two, three-word answer. And if you ever want to follow Pop's advice and pick a team, here's a suggestion. Uh, yeah, the Bengals the, uh, had a hell of a year. The AFC champion Cincinnati Bengals. I'm done with fantasy myself because it frustrates the hell out of me. There is nothing. It's, it's annoying, you know, losing games by, by, by a fifth of a point, a third of a point. But, you know, I, I, I can't stand it, you know, and all of a sudden, oh, this player's out, or oh, that player's out, a player that you expect, oh, it's going to have a great game. They sit up here and they wet the bed and you lose. So, and, and, I, and I get really bothered by that. So this year, I say, you know what? No fantasy, no fantasy. I'm not old enough. To, I'm not old enough to bet. So there will be no, me, me watching football will certainly be the purpose of me being a fan of the sport my bangles and the purpose of this show. That's it. No fantasy and I'm and no fantasy and I'm too young to bet. But fantasy football, it, it, it's, it annoys the crap and frustrates the hell out of me because you feel nice. Oh, look, you know, because once late August, September comes around, you know, you start getting that itch. Oh, football's about to come back. And then by week 10, it's like, would you kidding me? Patrick Mahomes decided to pick today to go, you know, 13 to 24 with 198 passing yards and two interceptions. So it's like, I, uh, I can't say, I, I, it, it, I was like, it's, I, I forget what game or what circumstance it was, but it happened to me last year. I'm like, you know what? I'm done. Next season, fantasy football, <laughs> go away. It, it's, it's enough. Uh, last few uh, nitty gritty questions that'll make you think, and then we'll wrap, and then we'll wrap it up. Biggest regret of your life thus far? Oh, biggest regret of my life thus far. That's a tough, tough question. I'll give you one. I wish I had stuck with running in terms of my track and field and cross country um, time, because. When I was a freshman in high school, I made the varsity team and I ran in the conference and state um, track meets in the, in the, in, in the, in the conference, I ran the four by, I, I, in both races, I ran the four by four and freshman year is by far my, my biggest track and field year. I ran a 505 mile um, in the, um, for track and field. And then I ran a 209 half mile and then I ran a 53.6 seconds uh, 400 meter, which is a quarter mile. So I definitely had some wheels my freshman year. And obviously, you know, as high school years sort of went on, you know, anxiety hit, you know, I fell more in love with basketball. You know, I had different sort of hobbies. You know, I had a couple of girlfriends. So I wasn't as invested. 
I think the biggest regret for me is not taking running more seriously. Now, granted, you have to love running. You have to love sort of motivating yourself and not in like a team manner. But I feel like if I had stuck with running, I could have ran at the collegiate level. Not saying division one, because I want to toot my own horn. But I certainly could have ran somewhere at, the, at, at, at a collegiate track and field team somewhere. Vibe that because your dad says, you know, he and I love how he casually at 62 years of age mentions that he runs six miles every day. I'm like, every single time I said, I'm like, dog, well, man, your age, that's pretty damn good that you're able to run six miles every day, no problem. So I get the feeling that they that they that you that your family is a is a running fan that loves to get outside, put on the uh, tie up the running shoelaces and just go out there and just take off. So I get that, uh, I get that, uh, that vibe from you as well. Um, greatest fear. Greatest fear. I have a couple. Scares the hell out of you. I hate planes. Planes really mess with me. I'm not sure if it's because of the heights or the speed before we take off, but I get really heavy anxiety from plane rides. I've gotten better. You know, I usually I was I was one of the kids who had to wear either like the either like the anti-nausea wristbands or take a jam in me before flights, just so I don't think about throwing up. Not that I've ever gotten motion motion sickness before, but I guess that goes in my next year. I, I hate throwing up. Um, so those are my two biggest fears. But I guess with the plane, you know, I've gotten so much I've gotten so much better with the plane where I didn't need the jam meat over the course of this basketball season. Because obviously you're flying maybe once a week, twice a week. Depends on where you go. So, or once every other week. So I didn't take a single Dramamine pill or do the anti-nausea wristband throughout the course of the season with UConn, which has been great, which has been a great accomplishment for me. But I still hate and fear throwing up. Not sure why, not sure what it is. I can't seem to shake it. That's probably the two biggest things that just give me the biggest irritation ever. What about yourself, Jai? I'm interested about you. Back to me, Tim's, Tim's uh, quick with it. Um, rather be told to try to kill a snake than to kill a rat or a mouse or a raccoon or a possum. I don't know why. It's like, you know. I don't know whether it's the fact that, you know, me personally is able, because I get like it. Like, for instance, last year, there was like, I, I almost stepped on a snake going outside, hmm. shaking out uh, a patio rug or whatever. And I was about to step on it. And Tim, when I tell you that my leg was at the, me standing up, I'm six foot three. When my leg came up to where my ear is i am not exaggerating and my father had a machete has a machete that he uses you know in case oh. we run into snakes and i took that machete and it was like the wrath of god just like flowed through my bike i didn't end up killing it he did but the wrath of God, I was like, I was like, I was like, like I put when I saw that snake, I put myself in a zone that I can't myself snap into. Like it's like a supernatural, like 
strength of strength and courage of a thousand sons that comes within me whenever I, you know, like seeing this. I don't notice the fact that growing up, growing up in a religious household and the, and the snake, you know, kind of like being associated with the devil. So I don't, I, maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I, if you tell me to kill a snake, as long as it's not like poisonous, I don't get crazy. But I don't mess with the coons. I don't mess with coons. I don't mess with possums, rats, mice, even foxes to a certain degree. I see foxes around outside. Uh-uh, I want no parts of them. Even, tur- <laughs> even, tur- even turkeys. And- like, I almost got into a fight in middle school one time. Some- we went to a former whatever. And somebody snuck up behind me with a chicken in their hand, and I and I and I nearly and I nearly cussed them out and wanted to chop their head off. I was I I meant like, that because I get I, I get a certain way. It's like I'm jumpy. Like don't 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 mess with me like that. Um, yes, I, I used that for fear of them. I don't anymore. I just straight up just don't like them. I, I can't. I do not like roller coasters. Uh, okay. I don't. I just naturally I don't. You know, whenever we go on trips. No, to like like on July seventh and the eighth, you know, me, my brother and sister, my cousin are going down to Virginia in King's Dominion. I know that I'm gonna have to bite the bullet, suck it up, and man up and go on a couple of roller coasters just to be involved. I won't ride every one, and they and they pre- they don't like it, but they pretty much accept it. And I listen. After a while, I'm gonna get tired and I'm gonna get sick of them. So. Cause they, you know, they love to go on every single one until until literally one of them vomits. I'm like, you know, I'll do three or four, and then if I have my fair share, depending on how I'm feeling, if I had enough, I'll have enough and we can call it for a day. Uh, but I used to have a big fear of them, but I don't anymore. Um, you know, I, I don't, have, I don't have fear of heights. I don't have a fear of flying. I don't have a fear of bugs. I don't have a fear of spiders. Uh, my fear is more or less more complex when I'm afraid stuff like afraid of failure, uh, yeah. fear of a fear of failure, a fear of dying. Uh, I have not really a fear, but when it comes to sports, I have FOMO. When it comes, like I hate if I know if there's a big game or you know if it's like a regular season Orioles game, I'll live. But if it's a Bengals regular season game, an NBA playoff game, NBA finals game, NFL, like I, I like I have it, like it literally will bother me if I am not in front of the TV right at the exact moment when the game starts. Like I, 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 I get that. I don't get like crazy. Like there's like I have the itch where it's like, like I, I gotta like find a way as soon as possible for me to be able and available to watch it, especially if it's close. Like I just, ugh, I hate that. Um, but you know, out, outside of, you know, stuff like rodents and failure and death, you know, dying at a dying prematurely kind of freaks the hell out of me too. Uh, yeah, I feel you know, just, uh, what inspires you when you get up every day? I don't know whether or not you have your own place or you still living, uh, at the compound. Uh, what inspires you every day when you get when you get up in the morning? What drives you every day to uh, to want to be the best? Well, I think the biggest thing that my dad has been saying recently, because I know that um, sometimes this job is very difficult and very challenging mentally for sure. So I think one of the things that my dad is starting to constantly say is stay the path. Stay the path, stay the path, stay the path. See it through, see it through, see it through, stay the path, stay the path. So honestly, just have those two phrases just stuck on my head. Stay the path, 
and see it through. Because at the end of the day, you're not really going to know the result of something unless you do it. So I honestly just sort of forced myself to say those phrases a couple of times um, and just see the path, see where I end up, you know, see it through, push through, keep fighting, all that stuff. And I think those are the sort of phrases that I get from my dad. Um, and I'm not going to say that my dad is the biggest motivator. Granted, he might be in a lot of cases, but, you know, I think that I think my biggest thing is trying to motivate myself, you know, with some of the frustration that I receive just in general. So I think that that has been a, a contributing factor as well. Um, and other things that inspire me, I think that just seeing, I don't know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to sort of explain it. I think just sort of seeing the progression of, 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 of me sort of sort of advancing myself, you know, like when I first started here at UConn, you know, like Hurley wouldn't really notice me, but now, you know, he's, you know, he sometimes talks shop me, you know, sometimes he'll make a comment about me, which is positive. And I'm doing a little, I'm doing more things around the office. I'm, I'm gaining a lot, more, a lot more respect from the people I work with. So I think just the idea of just progression and just the idea that I'm starting to make an impact, even though I think I did last year for sure, but I think just continuing to make an impact has certainly been a couple of the motivating factors that I keep in mind. So I guess those couple of phrases that my dad has sort of implanted in my brain, excuse me. And then, you know, just the idea that I'm progressing, even if it's like the littlest thing is getting a, a yes, Tim, or a Tim, could you help me with this? I think those are the couple of things that sort of keep me sort of humble and, you know, keep me coming in the office every day. What a fantastic job. Where do you see yourself will be 34 going on 35 in 10 years? And I'll be right behind you. What are you born? 1996, 97? 98. 98. 98, four years before. And you're in December, right? Your birthday's in December. December. Yep. Four years, three years older than yours, truly. I'll be 30 right beside, right, uh, right uh, behind you. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time come 2032? Uh, 10 years from now. Uh, um, at that point, I think I want to be – I think the biggest thing here with Division One basketball is you have to latch on to somebody. You know, you have to latch on to a coach, meaning, like, you have to build a rapport, a relationship with them, both in the working place and sort of off the court. I think that's sort of the biggest things that you sort of have to take it with this job, you know. And, yeah, I think you have to – you know, make yourself available to the players too. Cause I think that, you know, the most important aspect to any college basketball team is the players and making sure that they are taken care of and all that. So I think it's, I think for me, for 10 years from now, I want to be an assistant, but I want to be like a low grade assistant. And I don't mean that in a way that I don't think highly of myself, but I want to, I want to be in a situation where I could still grow from that, from this position. So I think if I had to choose a coach or two to sort of follow, if they were to get a next head coaching job somewhere, it would be Luke Murray, who's an assistant here, or Tom Moore, who my dad knows, who I've known for several years, and he sort of take me under his wing too. So I think if either of those two coaches get a head coaching job somewhere in the next two, three years or so, I would like to follow them and sort of see where their path goes. Because I think that if you latch on to a coach and build a rapport and sort of gravitate towards them or they gravitate towards you in terms of, either simple errands or just helping them out with projects and things of that nature. I think that that's sort of a segue into, into becoming a head coach. So 
and, and, and it's all about connection. So I think that my best bet is to be some sort of like an assistant somewhere, probably at a mid-major because I still want to be learning at that age. Um, but I think I definitely want to be following one of these coaches um, in the next, in the, you know, you know, coming the next five years or so. So I think that if I can get to that point where I'm like a little assistant somewhere, um, I'd be pretty happy with myself. Can you stay dedicated? Uh, and as your father told me, keep your dreams and uh, everything that you want out of this life will come to prosper and will come to uh, fruition. Uh, I only ask of one thing. When you become the head coach at uh, Duke or at uh, Syracuse or right back at UConn, uh, can I ask, can I have about 10, 15, 20 minutes of your time before the NCAA tournament when you're the head coach of your own program somewhere in the, uh, in the ACC or in the Big East? Is, is that uh, too much to ask? Do I have uh, your word that you'll come on? Anything for you, Jai. Anything, anything for you, Jai. And, and by the way, I'll do you one better. When I become a head coach, hopefully here in the next 15, 20 years, I'll make sure that you have an, uh, a nice seat somewhere in the facility. I'll make sure that you're there. Tim, you are my man. I, I appreciate that, Todd. I really do. You did a fantastic job. Uh, we learned a lot. We learned uh, that your celebrity crush is a girl on a TV show that I've never heard of. We also <laughs> learned that we also learned that um, that you uh, bust your ass as a graduate assistant at UConn. We also learned that a uh, high, that a high school breakup was the motivation for you being atop of an AAU uh, scoring list, and uh, and that your dad got a huge kick, and that your dad got a huge kick out of that uh, as well. Learned a lot. Uh, the great and the inspiring Debonair. I tell you, he's going to be on the cover. Ladies, the few of you ladies out there that listen, he's going to be. He's rolling his eyes. I mean, he. He's going to be the one that's going to be that's going to be on the cover of uh, I don't know where he gets his uh, his his Dabonair looks from, but uh, he he's My going mother. to be on, yeah he's he's going to be on the cover of uh, of GQ magazine one of these days. You're going to see Tim you're going to see Tim Russo on, on the cover with the basketball in his hand, and like like Coach Pat Riley with his hair slicked back and a yes. nice thousand dollar suits yeah i tell you, you, you you're gonna see them and ladies will be throwing themselves at them i don't know if it's going to be i gotta sit up here and find the name of the girl now that you that you told me uh, uh how do you pronounce the name madeline klein like calvin klein yes. i guess you'll you'll Correct. see you'll see maybe she'll throw herself that on on a tv show uh netflix the outer banks which i've never heard of i gotta be completely honest but, you should uh, tune in. It's a good show. Just tune in. It's a very entertaining. It's a very entertaining show. I'll be the first I, to admit it. It's a great show, and it's binge worthy too. Definitely take a listen, or, or, or definitely start watching on Netflix. Through season two of The Sopranos, and then eventually The Wire, but maybe that'll find its way on yours truly's uh, viewing list. Tim Russo, phenomenal job. We will be back with the Amatelic Tia's podcast in just a moment. 
Thanks again to the great Timmy Russo for coming on the show, giving us a few hours, <laughs> a few hours, not minutes, but hours of his time. Hopefully you guys uh, enjoyed it. I love, the, there's a couple takeaways that I want to say before we say goodbye. I love the story that he said of the high school, uh, of the high school cheating scenario, and he goes out in his AAU tournament and makes and makes the leaderboard up in Massachusetts. I mean, I love the fact and and then Mad and then Mad Dog saying and then Mad Dog saying who gives a shit about that girl? You're on the leaderboard at at the AAU tournament, which I found to be quite interesting. Um, with uh, typical dog, uh, just typical, typical, typical Christopher. So, I mean, boy, was he into it. I, I, I could, I'm laughing because I could see him, you know, radio slash podcast is theater of the mind. So I could see him literally like walking up to him at 14, 15 years of age and him whispering, and him whispering that under his breath and then letting out a huge cackle at the, at the end of it and him pumping his fist going, yes, sir. Like I, I, I could totally, I could totally see that. And among other things, you know, what the hell are, are, I understand high school, you know, it's a, um, there's a lot of rated R stuff that goes down in high school, drugs, sex, uh, and, and, and of course the, 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 the cussing with the language, but I mean, my goodness gracious. I mean, what the hell are a bunch of 14 and 15, 15, 16 year olds doing sleeping around? I mean, are they, are they barely at the, st- I don't even know what the hell the statute of limitations and the age of, not statute of limitations, the age of consent is up in Connecticut, but my goodness gracious. I mean, we're 15, 16 years old now. I mean, not, not 25, not 25, 26, 35, 36. I mean, holy crap. My goodness gracious me. That's why, and that's why I played the, uh, that's why I played the future. She belongs to the streets because what, what type of sensible, uh, what type of sensible parents, parent or parents would allow, and and under their nose, their fifteen, sixteen year old daughter go around sleeping around. I mean, yeah, junior, senior year in high school, I get it. Fresh out of middle school, as a, as a freshman, wet behind the ears, breath smelling like Similac. I mean, give me a break. But I found that story to be very interesting. Also loved the Jim Nance story at Pebble Beach. Him taking her, uh, him playing at all those golf courses out near Pebble Beach, and then going through the Nance estate and having Jim Nance commentate uh, Timmy's putt, which I found to be fascinating. And him having, and, sorry, jeez, and him and his father having a conversation with uh, has to uh, have him and his dad having a conversation and sharing a meal with um with uh with uh nance but um but anyway i I absolutely i loved 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 that tidbit uh there's a third one that i thought was interesting too uh i love the response he gave about his father and and the whole jj reddick fiasco i found that to be a very a very nice eloquent answer um and the uh and um and the serial data part is funny too because because if you go back and you listen to back in back in December of last year where we had um where we had uh Colin on for the first time 
Uh, I believe that was the first time. Dece- not December 2021, December of 2020. We, uh, he, You got the sense from him that he basically is clued in with the sports and that's it, done fool, done fool around a, a whole hell of a lot with the girls while his older brother is the exact opposite and got the nickname the serial dater. I mean, just dating, dating women and dating girls all over the place. And uh, Madeline Klein of a TV show, Outer Banks, I would know Madison Madeline or Madeline Klein. I would know her from Dove Cameron. I Outer Banks. Who? What? I understand Outer Banks, North Carolina. I got a picture right now sitting in my room of me as a infant uh, resting on my father's uh, right shoulder with me uh, with me asleep and my dad about twenty years younger. In in the first ever little trip that the sh- as at that the little family of three that was my father, my mother, and myself took as a uh, as as a as a uh, quote unquote family was to the Outer Banks. And my father, uh, who drove, I forget what year it was, the late 90s, um, gold navigate, Navigator SUV, had, a, had an Outer Banks sticker on the back of it. And it was from that trip we had since gotten, we since, of course, had gotten rid of it, of course. Uh, but uh, that's the only thing I know about Outer Banks. That TV show, Tim says he, li- Tim says he likes it, that it's worth to give it a, a shot, worth to get it a, give it a watch. Um, you know, once I uh, finish uh, the Sopranos and I'm half and I'm just about finished through season two, I'm a, I'm ju- I'm just coming out of uh, the part of uh, of um, what's her face, Janice knocking off uh, Richie April, that douchebag, uh, because because he punched her right in the face and he went and she went and got and grabbed the gun. And Richie kept uh, kept on bumping his gums and taunted her, and uh, and Janice knocked knocked them off, and uh, Tony and his crew had to get rid of his body through meat through a meat uh, grinders and meat chippers at the Satrao's pork shop, and uh, and um, and had to ship Janice off back to uh, Seattle, which is where she was originally. Uh, located and then we got that and then we got the wire and then we own the city. so that is probably going to be on show list and then i also got to see the fresh prince of bel-air for the first time so that probably is about fifth or sixth on the pecking order of shows to uh for yours truly to uh check out now maybe it's a great show uh i'm looking at it's two seasons in on Netflix. I don't know if the I, I can't pull the uh, cast members out of a lineup. To be quite honest with you, Madison Bailey, Austin North, who what? I mean, not exactly. You know, I've never heard never heard of these individuals. I'm pretty sure they do uh, great work. Um, B minus via indie via indie wire. Rotten Tomato six point seven out of ten. So uh, maybe it's all right now. Now, Timmy, it might be two things, uh, and it's gotten nominated for a couple of People's Choice Awards. So I mean, that may that looks like it might be a positive sign, and won a People's Choice Award for the most binge-worthy show of 2020. Uh, you know, maybe you know, maybe Timmy says it's great because the celebrity crushes on the show, and maybe you know his uh, perspective is a bit blinded by that. But I trust Timmy uh, with his uh, with his TV show recommendations. He certainly has better taste in music than his father, so I would imagine he would have a decent taste in uh, TV shows. But hopefully, you guys got a huge. 
kick out of that uh, interview as he did a sensational job. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of the Amatelica TIS podcast as this one is in the books. I will talk to you guys later this weekend. If you are no, new to the program, excuse me, please do not hesitate to subscribe. Follow your boy on Twitter and Instagram at the J Shield. Follow the show on Twitter at Amatella underscore TIS and the show on Instagram at Amatella underscore podcast and follow Tim Russo on Twitter at Tim Russo Zero. It is your boy Jai Shields. I will talk to you this weekend. Y'all stay safe. Y'all take care. See ya.